extraordinary changes to the vintage restricted list on episode 49 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 49 of So Many Insane Plays. We're going to dig through the October 2015 Bannon Restricted List update for Vintage. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave us feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. Steve, with episodes so close together, we don't have quite as many announcements this time, but we do want to highlight a couple of things. One recent event since our last show is that Randy Bueller confirmed on Twitter two things about the VSL. One, his Patreon is now 100% in support of the VSL for the moment. So those of you wishing to to crowdfund just the VSL can do so now if you want. Go and do so right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Go go support the Vintage Super League. And the other big important piece of information is that Season 4 will start on November 24. And- and this will be a full of plenty of magic. And the season will open with a, a couple weeks play-in. So there will actually be a miniature tournament play-in to the larger. And we've got a lot of sort of community notables, luminaries, who will be competing in that event. And that'll be great. I'm sure everyone listening to this is very excited. I know I am. Let's dig right in, though, to the Bannon Restricted List update. Steve, banner restricted announcements in Vintage are always noteworthy, right? They're always important. They affect the format. But Treasure Cruise notwithstanding, for a number of years now, we've been in the habit of maintenance mode, unrestrict burning wish, you know, regrowth, things that are harmless, basically. Gifts ungiven turn out to be pretty harmless. Well, <laughs> I, I, the one thing I would say about that is that some of the, they've certainly been, you know, over the years, cleaned up a lot of the detritus. But I think some of the more recent cards they've unrestricted have been among the, the you know, the, the the sort of let's just say more riskier cards or at least surprising cards. I mean, sure. I don't anyone could have anticipated regrowth being unrestricted, you know, but it's turned <laughs> out to be okay. So, so your point is well taken. But yeah. yeah, but this announcement is is a big one. This is important for a number of reasons, but. Let's just look at the simple fact that this is the first time that two cards have been restricted in the same announcement in Vintage since 2008. That's a <laughs> long time. This is the biggest, I mean, this is the first time that three cards have even been mentioned in the announcement since 2009. That's six years. Right. We've been working right. with onesie twosie stuff since Gush. Yeah. <laughs> so this yeah, is a I mean, big it's, shakeup. It's fascinating. You know, it's fascinating because it, for those of you who are like old school players, and I mean old school, not in you know, not in the sense that you enjoy old, playing old school magic, but you are a player who played back in the day, like mm-hmm. like me. You know, banned and restricted list announcements were one of those things you anticipated. You know, to some extent, even more than sets. You know, it's just exciting. You knew something was going to happen. And vintage has been such a stable and, and well-rounded format for the last couple of years that they really haven't barely had to do anything. In fact, you kind of get the sense that some of the restrictions, the unrestrictions they made have just been, let's try this and see what, what'll happen. Mm-hmm. You know, let's let's be a little risky. I mean, 
they've unrestricted cards that did not seem like they would be safe on restrictions. I mean, I don't think that, uh, I certainly don't think that, um, you know, like I already said, regrowth, but uh, Gifts Ungiven was maybe borderline. Uh, and and they unrestricted things even a couple, you know, in 2008, like Chrome Mox, that I, you know, I, I was surprised by at the time. But, mm-hmm. I mean, to your point, you know, it's been a long time since they've restricted a card prior to Treasure Cruise. In fact, the, the card that was restricted prior to Treasure Cruise was Thirst for Knowledge in 2009. <laughs> so there was basically a six-year period where they had never restrict they hadn't restricted anything in Vintage. Mm-hmm. This is a format where, you know, outside observers may think, well, geez, that's a format where you probably have to restrict things left and right. In fact, just the opposite. Mm-hmm. This is a format where, from 2000 and basically June of 2009 until January of this year, all they had did, done was unrestrict five different cards. And in fact, in 2014, there wasn't a single change made to the restricted list. Not one. <laughs> Neither restricted or unrestricted. Between April of 2013 and January of this year, you know, basically an 18-month period, nothing had changed on the restricted list. And that's the only year that that was the case in the history of the format. 2006 was also the same way. Really? So it's the second year. Yeah. That's crazy. Going thinking back to the early nineties, you would think yeah. that maybe when, when type one was established, you know, they had things figured out. No. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. Cards were going on and off the list like crazy in the late nineties. <laughs> yeah. And then the only exception the only Right. But then in the period of two thousand through say two thousand and nine, the average announcement had something like yeah. five cards on it. Yeah, well, they were you know, cleaning up a lot it, then. Yeah, the restricted banner restricted list has had this kinds of periods of ballooning and then and then gradual shrinkage. And you know, the, the maintenance of it has has kind of had these. You might call it binge, whatever the opposite of binging is. You know, <laughs> period where you know in 1999 they restricted 18 cards, which is the most they'd ever restricted since the beginning of the format. And a lot of those cards were just complete overkill. I mean, mm. we've talked about this in previous co- podcasts, but it's my opinion that they should probably not restrict more than one or one or two cards at a time at, ever, because the, the effect of any single restriction can be so profound. Yeah, for systemic really, reasons. Yeah, for systemic reasons. To really observe it and, and understand it, the effects, you should probably space them apart. But, you know, just unwinding the effects of the 1999 mass restriction took a decade. And then, you know, they were times, little miniature restrictions where they restrict... You know, for example, in 2003, they restricted a ton of cards, but at the end of the year, they restricted um, they restricted Burning Wish, Lions Out Diamond, and Chrome Mox in, in early. At the you know the announcement was the end of 2003. It took effect January 1st. Right. But but they un, they've unrestricted two of those three cards. The basic pattern when it comes to restrictions, Kevin, is that almost any time in the history of format, I think this is actually true. Every single time in the history of the format, they've restricted more than one card. Later on, they've unrestricted at least one of those cards, which suggests that every time they sort of try and deal with the problem by hammering out a couple of the cards, it's usually proved to be a little bit overkill. Yeah. So, I mean, the really the, the prime example most recently was the sort of wave restriction we saw in 2008 of Brainstorm, Flash, Gosh, Merchant, Skull, and Ponder. Now, only one of those cards has been unrestricted, but at least one of them has, mm-hmm. which is Gosh. Um, and that's the last time. In fact, that yeah, as you as you point out, that's the last time we've had multiple cards restricted in one in one 
uh, moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, every single restriction has been a singleton. In fact, there's been very few. It was Time Vault restricted because they ratted it, Thirst restricted, and then Treasure Cruise restricted this year. Mm-hmm. So this is a very unusual historical juncture in the history of the format. And you and I have gone on record about the notion that we, we do wish they would decouple the banned and restricted announcements from new set releases. It just so happens that Battle for Zendikar is going to have very little impact on Vintage, according to our predictions. But that doesn't, well. change, the fact, <laughs> that doesn't change the fact that we do wish they would go back to a staggered schedule so that we could tease out the different effects of the two. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. In fact, I think hilariously you had uh, the observation that, according to our logic, it should be spaced out at the, the precise opposite interval That's right. <laughs> between sets. That's- yeah, I think from a systemic standpoint, they have chosen 180 degrees off from what the ideal scenario is in terms of timing. Yeah, but we don't need to belabor that point. So, no, no. but we do want to read this announcement as it pertains to vintage in its entirety, right? Yeah. So, um, so we'll just take them in order that they were presented. Uh, here's what they had to say about Chalice of the Void. It's only a few sentences, so we'll break it down. Workshop decks have become more and more popular. However, too many games are effectively decided by the first player's first turn. The major problem is that a turn one Chalice of the Void for zero deprives the opponent an opportunity to put Moxon on the battlefield. While players can adapt by not playing Moxon, the point of the format is to provide a place to play those cards. Chalice of the Void is restricted. I have to say that's really fascinating, and there's a lot to tease apart. Mm -hmm. But I'll give you the first time at it. Well, the first sentence is... (laughs) the workshop decks have become more and more popular which i think is it is technically true from a from a directional standpoint meaning workshop decks are making up a slightly larger portion of top eights than they have been in say the last five years because as we observed they're up to 25 ish percent as we predicted before champs that that's not significantly higher that is not over a longer period of time that that point does not really hold that much water. Well, Kevin, you're talking about top eights. Popularity to me means representation in the metagame. I failed to see what popularity has to do at all with the you know banned and restricted list policy. I mean, for example, you could have a deck that could literally be 50% of the field of a metagame in a tournament room and 0% of top eight. Mm. Would you say that that deck needed to be restricted or mm. needed restriction or policy response? Definitely I mean, I, I present a... I present that as an extreme example to illustrate that popularity should have zero bearing. I have to give them credit and I, I have to sort of to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm interpreting the word popularity there to mean increasing prevalence in tournament results, not just med- metagame. Well, you're right. Your point at face value, this popularity thing doesn't ha- has no, no place in this kind of policy. But in my opinion, I read this into mean uh strong performances i read this into me in top eight performances and top eight is a term of art when you talk about mtgo because the dailies don't have top eights you know so they're probably in that terminology you're talking about three or four o decks on mtgo so so let's just break respond to that sentence if we interpret what they mean by popularity to mean workshop decks are have seen increasingly whatever performance Mm -hmm. increasingly improving in performance that's a true statement. Yeah. But I simply don't know how they can how they can assess whether workshops are more popular or not. Now, certainly performance well, we'll tends just... to lead popularity. But I mean, do they have <laughs> access to? Are they looking at real like total metagame data? We don't even look at that. I mean, so I have no way of knowing 
I mean, I guess we can look at, I mean, we, we, we do have the NYSE metagame data and we do have the um, Vintage Championship data and those numbers look basically exactly like what we predicted and what we've always seen from workshops, basically 20 to 25% of the field. I don't think that, I do not think it's accurate to say that workshops are increasingly popular, say, over the last four, in the, in the most recent time period than they have been over the last four years. I don't think that's accurate to say. It's simply well, an, an unfactual statement. It's an unfactual statement. I think there might be some behind-the-scenes stuff for Magic Online that you and I are not privy to, given that they do not publish all results. But, but so Magic there could on, be some Magic, part of that equation. I, the, yeah, that's too much credit because Magic Online's only been here for an, a year, and workshops, it, you know, were always held back because, in part because of the the price and unavailability of Wasteland. Mm. And so, you know, I I don't think I don't you know. Plus, we're talking. The statement is workshop decks have become more and more popular. And you know, against what time frame? You know, they were nothing. The workshop has been has been restricted since Trinisphere in two thousand and five. Let me just mm -hmm. double check. Trinisphere was restricted in two thousand and five, right? Yeah. And so, increasingly popular for what? I would assume that to mean the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. I just don't think that that's a true statement. I think what they really mean by that, it, again, is that workshop decks have become increasingly. Uh, represented among the top eight results or the top results. I think that, that is a fair statement. That's how that's I interpret that we, it as well. Yeah, but, that's, but what they said is not accurate. Well, I, we will not be able to prove or disprove if that's really what they meant by popular. But but, but the word popular has, has a dictionary definition. So anyway. <laughs> I, 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 I agree. I agree. The next sentence, though, about games being effectively decided by a first player's first turn is... That's, that's another one where there's a lot of anecdotal evidence, I think, about that. But also, you and I have observed over the course of the last year a dramatic increase in Chalice of the Void's play being at one mana, which yeah. I think serves to undermine this point and the, the, the next point as well a little bit. Yeah, I, I th we should have said this at the outset, but let me just be clear about this. We're not coming into this. To bring the point of this podcast is not to bring criticism. In fact, the point of this podcast is to sort of try and assess what the effects of these decisions are going to be. Decisions will be, mm -hmm. but we do want to assess the reasoning and understand it, and that's why we're deconstructing it. So we're not mm -hmm. deconstructing what they say for the purpose of criticizing the DCI. We're doing it so we can try and better understand their reasoning. Just to yeah. clarify for our, our audience. Now, to the point that you just made, there was actually a very similar rationale given when they restricted Trinisphere, Kevin. And their Trinisphere explanation, yeah, their Trinisphere explanation, they talk a lot about basically preventing, it's, it's here for example, he says, Aaron Forsyth in the Trinisphere explanation, he says, Trinisphere literally prevents the opponents from playing spells. We don't want magic to be about that, especially not too easily. Now, I th so that in that sense, yeah. what they say about Chalice of the Void has an, an obvious parallel. Yeah. I was definitely getting flashbacks to the Trinisphere announcement when I read these first two <laughs> sentences here. Um, I, I, I don't want to harp on Magic Online per se, but I would yeah. say that this is the kind of statement that could be objectively measured using Magic Online, assuming they have yeah. the sophisticated, sufficiently sophisticated statistics about how games progress. Something right. we can't do in paper except for our horrible anecdotes and tournament reports and such. But on Magic Online, they could certainly measure the average length of games that involve a chalice on the first turn, that kind of thing, who wins, who loses, 
how many Moxon were played. I mean, I don't know if they have every one of those stats, but it's the kind of thing you could measure on Magic Online. Yeah, I, 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 that's definitely true, and I think that's a good point. I think the, more, the far more fascinating thing is this assertion about what the point of the format is. Yeah, I knew you'd love that. <laughs> that, that, that is such an interesting thing. I mean, so, so again, the sentence is, you have to kind of connect the logic. There's There are, what, five sentences in this in, in this announcement pertaining to Chalice of the Void. I'm sorry, there are one, two, three, four, five. Um, and the sentences read, a major problem is that a turn one Chalice for zero deprived the op- opponent of an opportunity to put Moxon in the battlefield. While players may adopt by not playing Moxon, the point of the format is to provide a place to play those cards. It's interesting, the word play is actually syntactically ambiguous here. Because the point mm-hmm. of the format is the players get to play those cards, meaning there's a place where you can design decks and include them. That, to me, is, is part of the point of the format. But it's not the point of the format that you have a sort of automatic right to be able to resolve your mock. <laughs> I mean, that is a totally different meaning of that term. And they actually conflate it in that sentence. And I yeah. think that's important because, you know, what does that mean? What is the significance of being able to sort of include them in your deck versus resolve them? I mean, how does that extend to things that prevent you from using them? Like Null Rod, right? Right. I, I find that to be a really potentially hazardous statement. Certainly, it's fine to say that people, this is a format, one of the points of the format is this is a place where you can play with those cards. But to actually, that's not, that the statement, this is the place, you know, the statement as phrased here would seem to suggest that the point of the format is this is a place where you get to actually resolve those cards. <laughs> and to me, that's a much more hazardous um, sort of claim. But taking it face value, it's fascinating nonetheless. And I think your point is actually really well taken, which is that, you know, Chalice for Zero, Chalice for Zero is not actually the right play a lot of the time. And and against Gush decks, against Oath decks, it's probably wrong. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that if this logic is true, if this logic is the reason that they restricted Chalice, it does not make sense as to why they did it now. I wrote an article in 2002, I believe, called Chalice of the Void is the New Black of Eyes. <laughs> and it was just, it, sorry, it had to be 2003. It was right after Mirrodin came out, and it was, Chalice had just been spoiled. And what I basically argued was that this we should consider restricting this card because it prevents people from playing Moxon. And it doesn't, the parallel to Black of Eyes will be lost today because Black of Eyes <laughs> was restricted in the, at the time. But right. what I meant, it was a card that sort of pinches people out from being able to do things they want to be able to do. And I made exactly the same argument that they are making here in 2003, mm-hmm. <laughs> 12 years ago. So it, it really escapes me how, if that logic is true, this card hasn't wasn't restricted 12 years ago. Why now? So it's clear that there's something missing here in their explanation because that logic was just as powerful in 2003 as it is today. Well, I guess you have to take the thing as a whole. That's how I yeah. that's how I respond to the your summation there is that if you believe that Chalice does what you say it does, if you believe it disincentivizes Moxon and prevents people from playing games and leads to non-interactive games on the first turn no less, if you yeah. take all of that as a given and you mix that together with the increasing representation and I'm using representation rather than the word popular of workshops, that must suggest that we've passed some kind of threshold. And I guess 
I guess the representation has to be the key then. It has to be the impetus. They, they did put it first in their explanation. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, so, so I mean, we've talked at, at length in previous podcasts that if they want to do something about workshops, they have a number of options. I mean, there are mm-hmm. a lot of cards they could restrict it. They could restrict yeah. workshop. They could restrict Chalice of the Void. They could restrict Lodestone Golem. Mm-hmm. There are other cards even besides that are less obvious. They could could restrict it, like a mm-hmm. sphere or a tangle wire or some other component. But I mean, I was on the record in saying in previous episodes that I believe that the proper card to restrict would have been Lodestone Golem Chalice. But I want to before I get to that, I really want to more deconstruct their their uh, their reasoning. It's also interesting, Kevin, to note that um, that the fact that Chalice deprives the opponent of playing being able to play zero spells can actually be a good thing for the format. So I mean, I actually like the fact. So so think about this: <laughs> when Chalice of the Void was sort of in its heyday, you know, in the post Mirrodin era, when you know whatever. Chrome Mox was immediately restricted. There wa- Mox Diamond was restricted, and there was no Mox Opal. Since that period, they've unrestricted Chrome Mox, they've unrestricted Mox Diamond, and they printed Mox Opal. Mm-hmm. And now they're restricting Chalice of the Void. It's possible that the, those unrestrictions are seen as more possible or plausible because of the presence of cards like Chalice of the Void, which can help keep in check decks that rely on just you know like Belcher decks. I think the Chalice of the Void played a very important role in helping keep Belcher decks and decks like that in check. What do you think? There's no doubt. And let, me, I, let, me frame, let me frame it more broadly. I, what do you think about the possibility that Chalice of the Void played a positive role in the environment? I think there are definitely elements of its presence that are positive. To your point, it's, a, it's an obvious tool for workshops, but part of the reason it's obvious in workshops is because workshops are a mana denial strategy, and also they possess right. the card Mishra's Workshop, which allows them to give maximal flexibility to what a chalice can be set at. I mean, sure. casting chalice at zero, one, and two, occasionally even three, two. are all legitimate strategies because you have Mishra's Workshop, basically, even though zero yeah. and one are, are by far the most common. But outside of the context of workshops, a handful of other decks are able to exist because of chalice like some humans lists uh merfolk frequently uses chalice there are a handful of uh new concoctions like this this great blue deck that's relatively new still which uses chalice in a very interesting and tactical way other than just i'm going to win on the first turn yeah i mean it's like remember my old my blue control deck from back in the day i had chalice of the void in my mono blue control deck to set at zero or one Mm -hmm. and in the blue moon deck does the exact same thing Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at the Vintage Championship, 2015 Vintage Championship Top 64, there were, how many decks had Chalice? Did we? 25. 25 of the Top 64 decks in the Vintage Championship had Chalice of the Void. And many of, uh, more than a few of them, I think four at least, were non-workshop yep. decks. You had a Humans deck, a Junk Humans deck. You had a Merfolk deck, like the one that Chris Pakula played in the Vintage Super League with Chalice. You had uh, the Blue Moon deck, and you had an Oath deck mm-hmm. that could set it through. And, and zero or one had different strategic or tactical implications. Against the big mana decks, you put it at zero. Against the gush decks, you put it at one, mm-hmm. which cuts from Delver and Preordain and all that stuff. And I think that being able to do that, put pressure against those very popular decks, was an important role. I mean, look, budget decks could deploy Chalice as an anti-Moxin tactic. And against gush decks, which didn't run a lot of Moxin, they could deploy it as an anti-cantrip tactic. And I think that mm-hmm. was actually an important part of the form. Proved over time to be an important part of the format. So if they were really 
you know, aiming at neutering workshop, I think there's a lot of collateral damage by this blast. Yeah. A lot. And I'm not sure I, you know, I, we can shift to the discussion of Lowstone Golem, but I really think that, you know, it's great to have decks like Belcher or even the Rogue Hermit decks in the format or <laughs> Ad Nauseam. You know, but the, it's great that they're there, but I think there have to be really powerful checks that aren't just Force of Will. That, that you can even run if you're not running Force of Will. And Chalice of the Void was probably among the best, and now it's gone. And I think that that is probably overall a bad thing for the format. You know, because it's not, it, it's sort of, they sort of sort of sweep with such a broad brush with Moxon, but the decks that use mo- like five Moxon and the decks that use 12 Moxon are very different. Yeah. I think. A funny thing has just occurred to me, given your emphasis just now on non-workshop chalice decks. Do a thought experiment with me. If if every deck in the format was allowed to play chalice except Mishra's workshop decks, <laughs> if that was a concept, and we don't, that doesn't. This is hypothetical. I think that post this announcement, we might see more heavy mox-based decks, and other archetypes yeah. would start to splash in chalices just to gain equity against yeah. those decks. Which I think Absolutely. would be a fascinating development and an interesting different position for Chalice in the format. And I think that elucidates it, what you're talking about. Chalice has a has not just a shut down the game role, but also a very valid format uh, wrangling role. Yeah, I, but it's also interesting this little throwaway phrase here where they say, "While some players can adapt by not playing Moxon, I don't think people adapt." To chalice by not playing moxen rather there are good reasons and valid reasons that some decks don't play all the moxen some of the decks don't play all the moxen because it's not the right decision mm-hmm. so bug decks you know delver decks mm-hmm. some mentor decks they don't play all the moxen still. because lands because they're they they are designed on different set of principles and in the in the case of mo- some of those decks they're designed around cantrips and the turbo xerox you know alan comer school uh gush principles which mm-hmm. are you max, you minimize your mana base. You maximize your spell celerity, et cetera, et cetera. And those decks, Chalice has an important, just an important role there in fighting those, as they, as it does against the big mana decks. So it's the, the reality is that the vintage right now, or at least in, in the last couple of years, with the success of bug decks, with the success of rug decks, et cetera, there's been a lot of decks in the format that don't want all of the Moxen, and that they haven't been cutting back on Moxen because of Chalice. They've been cutting back on Moxon because it's not right to include all of them. I think you're exactly right. And I really hope that that phrase, you meant you described it as throwaway. And I, I agree. It's not the most compelling part of the, <laughs> it's not, it's not in support of the decision. It's just a, it's a little bit of ancillary information. It's over the yeah. yeah. Um, but I hope that it didn't, that notion didn't factor too strongly into this overall pastiche of, of it's elements. Because, because it it's cuts def- the other way. It cuts the other way, and also it it's it, it's difficult to prove. You and I cannot prove to anyone that the, that these decks you listed cut those moxen for reasons other than chalice. You know, it's not something you can prove. As a designer, I can say that I can assert that, and, and that's evidence. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, I, I know, but that's just. I don't want to get. I, well, my, I think the, I think the notion of proof. I don't want to get sidetracked, but I think the notion of proof is actually very problematic. Because there's no such thing as proof. There's proof against this particular standard. Of yeah, proof. I, know, I know. And I, I think my okay. point is, is that is that you and I are very confident in this, and I, I bet we could get a lot of people to agree with us that those decks didn't, just as you said, they didn't cut those mocks out of fear of chalice. They chose not to play them because they were not right for the deck. Their the decks tactics or strategies or both, and 
I hope that that statement doesn't hold a lot of weight in the bigger picture of proving this, that, that people were looking yeah. that, that people in the, in the decision-making process looked at decks like Delver and said, look at this deck. It's only playing two Moxon. Yeah. I mean, they're obviously afraid yes. of Chalice. I hope that that was never said. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that, I mean, I don't think it, it even needs proof. I think the thing speaks for, I mean, just obvious anyone who understands how to, and I know the DCI knows how to design decks. They should be able to look at Delver decks and realize that they shouldn't be running all five Moxon. Yeah, I, no. I would agree. Which, so makes, I don't, which makes it, that addition of that piece of information curious at, at least and concerning yes. at, at worst. Yes, exactly right. That's why I, I focused in on it. Yeah. Um, I do want to say that, you know, again, I've said this in multiple podcasts, that if they were going to restrict a card, I think it should have been Gollum. And let me just very briefly explain why. Mm -hmm. So I understand the ration, the, you know, the rationale for restricting Chalice. I, I understand also the rationale that other people have explained for it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I wonder, though, so, so let me just explain why I think Gollum should have been restricted. Basically, they're both lock parts. They both impact the game immediately. Mm -hmm. I think there are at least two key reasons why Gollum is preferable, maybe three. The first is, and the most important, is that a board with chalices and spheres can be beaten if you have enough time to dig out of it. You know, if you can, if you, workshop decks have no really, they have limited card manipulation and card draw. Mm -hmm. And so it's possible that you, you as a, against a workshop deck, that they have a bunch of spheres and chalices in play, you can actually, you know, a chalice set at zero, a chalice set at one, multiple spheres. You can actually draw out of it and, and defeat them if you if they draw multiples of this like the third crucible right <laughs> this, you know yeah. or too many lands or something you draw lands and and, and fire off a Hercules or something like that whereas that's not you cannot buy you cannot with enough time beat a golem you just cannot a golem mm. has that tempo threat so there's you that what golem takes away is time it takes away time and your ability to play spells. And mm -hmm. I actually think Gollum is the better hit for that because, you know, it's a card that is ubiquitous in workshop decks, if not even more so than Chalice. And we can talk about that as well based mm -hmm. upon the top eight. All the top eight, all the decks in the Vintage Championship, top whatever, that were workshops, they had four Gollums, and they didn't all of them have four spheres. We'll, I'll let you make that point. In chalice. A Ch four Chalices, you mean? Yeah, I'm sorry, four Chalice. Yeah. That's what I meant to say. Um, you know, and so vis a vis Gollum. Golem actually reduces your capacity to answer it. The other thing is, the, the second point, I guess, is that it's clear that ever since the printing of Golem, multicolor workshop decks have been pushed out. And workshop decks have, in a sense, all been more and more tempo-oriented. Whereas Chalice of the Void can be used in the tempo decks, the aggro decks, and the control decks. Mm -hmm. I think restricting Golem would have helped diversify the strategic variety within workshops even more, to the extent that Chalice, you know, Restricting Chalice actually cuts in the exact opposite direction. Remember, Roland Chang's Vintage Championship winning deck list had three Chalices. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Only three. He didn't have all four. And then the, the third key reason is, I mean, as between those two choices, Chalice of the Void has been around for 12 years and has never, except in the very first couple months of his existence, been seriously considered for restriction, I believe. Mm -hmm. And Gollum has been in existence for four years and has almost perpetually been considered for restriction. I mean, so <laughs> as between the two... It's it's like hitting Dark Ritual instead of Necropotent. It's right. Just, it's the wrong card, in my opinion. But I've said enough. Tell me what tell me what you think. I have one more point to make about Chalice being good for the format, but I wanted to hear more of your reactions. We're not to jump the gun. We're going to talk about thirst for knowledge a lot. 
In studying up for Thirst for Knowledge, invariably, Steve, you and I both looked at what the environment was like when it was restricted in 2009. I, you and I both studied those lists. We played at that time, but we refreshed our memory. I couldn't help but notice what the workshop decks were like at that time and how the various yeah. Thirst for Knowledge and other decks fought those workshop decks. And uh, Chalice was in full force at that time, and all of the dominant blue decks had all those Moxen. Every last one of them. They were not incentivized to cut Moxen at all. And, at all. And incidentally, prior to Lodestone being printed, which is when Thirst was restricted, they had almost, I mean, they had a laughably little sideboard cards dedicated to workshops. And the ones they That's did true. were mostly unplayable by today's standards. We're talking about Rack and Ruin. I mean, right. th- these were decks where their, their red sources were Lotus, Ruby, and two or three Volks. There was no scalding turn. There, there was no basic mountain. There was no extra land in the sideboard. Ingot chewers? Yeah, I've got one or two. I mean, the, the pressure that Lodestone Golem applied to the format just upon its arrival and yeah. the dramatic difference between the, blue, the dominant blue decks of that era that predated Golem, it's just staggering. But go back and look at Morphling.D in 2009, like June, and look at the blue decks yeah. that were winning tournaments. Those decks couldn't hold a candle to today's workshop decks. <laughs> No, it's so true. I, I can't help but wonder whether, as between restricting Chalice and, and Golem, you know, one, of the, one of the points I thought you were going to make, and I'll just make it now, is that you know, Brian DeMars's Hangerback Walker deck and, and uh, by extension, Paul Mastrano's, they did not run four Chalice. Mm-hmm. Brian had two, and Paul had three. And Paul was supposed to run two, but he didn't get the memo. <laughs> so the point is that Chalice of the Void was not central to what they were doing. And so I kind of wonder if, while that may look strange to an outside observer or even to an expert observer, why would you choose the card that's less central? It could be that as between all the options they were considering, they felt that hitting Chalice would do less harm to workshops, but nonetheless would deal with, would help deal with the problem. So it would solve the problem of you know setting workshops back a little bit, but wouldn't be quite so devastating to the archetype. Mm-hmm. That actually has... I think some validity to it in terms of reasoning, but I think that they, if they taken a broader view and saw all these other things that Chalice does, the positive effects it has on the format in terms of budget decks being able to fight Moxen, in terms of you know decks like Bears or Junk or whatever being able to also attack it one against Gush decks, mm-hmm. and also I, I also didn't say this, but I think being able to set Chalice for two against Oath. I mean, do we really want Oath to be better in this format? Is that what we want? You know, it's one, two, two finished championships in, 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 in a row. I mean, that to me is also baffling. You know, that's, that was an important play for workshops to be able to combat Chalice, I mean, Oath by playing Chalice 2. But all of those, all those considerations, also the diversity of workshops, again, I've said a million times, I strongly believe that if you had restricted Golem, you would see a much more diverse set of workshop decks emerge. Whereas restricting mm-hmm. Chalice the exact opposite you're going to entrench workshops you're going to entrench golem and workshops even further and you know i it, it's it takes two steps now to fix that problem <laughs> restrict golem and unrestrict chalice and so we're pretty far away from it so at this point we've just got to adapt i think it's just the wrong the wrong decision well in my estimation it will have the effect one of the effects they listed which is vintage is the place you can play those moxen <laughs> <laughs> 
And now you can play, I mean, like I said, there's a big difference between the decks that run five Moxin, you know, the alpha Moxin, yep. versus the decks that run 13 Moxin, like Ad Nauseam or Belcher or even some Burning Tendrils variants yeah. that will run five Moxin, three three or four Mox Opals. And in, in Belcher, what, Belcher runs three or four Mox Opals and they run four Chrome Mox. Yeah. So and I, I would not be surprised if we see a lot more combo in the very near future. I mean, Ad Nauseam, all that stuff. Yep. But that's getting into effects. I just wanted to, you know, I the, the again the key point is Chalice actually did positive things for the for the format, and and you've taken the lit, the the manhole cover off the sewer, so we're gonna see what what Ted emerges. <laughs> <laughs> Where do we go next? Let's go to the next card that they talked about, um, which is Dig Through Time. Okay, here's what they had to say about Dig Through Time. Dig Through Time has reduced the diversity of the format, though in somewhat in a somewhat different way than in Legacy. In Vintage, it has replaced many other card drawers, creating a less diverse format. Dig Through Time is comparable to other restricted card drawers and now shares that honor. <laughs> Dig Through Time is restricted. I think that there are basically two key points there. Mm-hmm. The first is a claim about reducing the diversity of the format. And they describe what they mean by diversity. They talk about in terms of card drawing. And the second is that it's comparable to other restricted card drawers. Um, <laughs> you know, whenever they say sort of the comparability thing, you know, this is a tutor and therefore it will also be restricted. Or this is the fast med accelerant. Mm-hmm. The DCI has basically shied away. They've, in fact, they've run in the exact opposite direction of restricting cards because they're comparable to other cards. The, the DCI has, I think, for the right reasons, been much more tuned to data and evidence as opposed to, say, analogy. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, for example, if you look at sort of the restriction of Chrome Mox, the reasoning was something like, which was written by Randy Bueller, was something like, this is a new Moxon, we are going to print more things like this, and you can expect them to be restricted. Well, they've gone in the exact opposite direction, right? They Not only did they unrestrict Chrome Mox and Mox Diamond, but they printed Mox Opal and it's never been touched. And, the, and they restricted Chalice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the idea that things are comparable is, is not really, has not been sort of key to reasoning and restrictions policy in, in recent history. But it is true that Treasure Cruise was just restricted in January, and this card is very comparable to Treasure Cruise. That is to say, the decks that ran 3-4 Treasure Cruise, they adapted by including this in the place of what where they ran the other Treasure Cruises. Mm-hmm. Um, I cannot fault them there at all. I think that if they are going to find that Treasure Cruise needs to be restricted, then I think that that is perfectly logical that Dig, Dig follows. Um, I do think the other premise is more arguable, though more suspect but let me let you take the first stab at it well your first assessment i couldn't agree with more i mean the the comparability argument is it's strange and and wrought with pitfalls i think but in this case no one is surprised by that comparison right we all said it you and i said in our set review at least i did uh, why did they even make these two cards at the same time they're so functionally similar that why didn't they at least put them in different sets and then when Treasure Cruise gets restricted, uh, we and many other people said, well, all these decks are going to do is put two or three digs in in this spot. And lo and behold, and some people said from the get-go that dig might be the better card. And I think yeah. that yeah. I think that it, I think that if, if uh, just a little twist of fate had happened and they'd be printed in a different order or one other quirk had happened, I think history would show that dig is actually the better card of the two. And I think it promoted. <laughs> I think it promoted more broken strategies as opposed to just consistently powerful strategies. But that's splitting hairs. So no one is surprised by the fact that Dig is joining its cousin Treasure Cruise on the list, really. But 
but that's not really the, the issue at hand, right? Similarity does not necessitate similar treatment. It really doesn't. Yes. Yeah. If if Dick was had no copies in the yeah. top eight at champs, we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? I mean, so similarity is not the whole were, picture. <laughs> but instead, there were how many decks had Dig five? Five decks. There were five decks with five, Dig in the top five eight decks at champs. Had it, but there were only eleven copies. Yeah, so it's worth <laughs> but, noting. But again, but, go ahead. So it, it's it is a little oversimple to say there were five dig decks in the top eight. Obviously, it's restrictable. Well, there were five decks with dig. The most copies in any of those decks was three, so that's of note. And that only occurred in two of them: John's uh, Planeswalker Control deck and Ryan's Delver deck. Those are the only two ones that had three. Brian Kelly, the <laughs> winner, had two digs. Bobby Green, the runner-up, had one dig, and Mike Herbig, the mentor deck, had two digs. So we're talking about this restriction is going to have a pretty modest effect. Of the top two decks that were both dig decks, this restriction is going to move exactly one copy from those two lists combined. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So uh, I mean, part of the point that you're making is that, look, dig, two of the decks in the top eight only had one dig, so restriction doesn't affect them at all. <laughs> you know, uh, the restriction of dig, according to the evidence, I mean, there are a lot of dig decks, but they aren't necessarily heavy on dig. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> there are a number of pieces of or elements to tease out here. One thing I just want to point out is that I believe every deck that had dig in this top eight also had a treasure cruise. I want to verify that. Maybe you should verify that while I say that. That's not correct. Brian Kelly's had two dig and no treasure cruise. Bobby Green has one treasure cruise. Michael Herbig has one treasure cruise, yeah, and treasure cruise. Everyone except Brian, yes. Yeah. So from one perspective, you could say, what if treasure treasure cruise had ne- would never been printed or didn't exist? Mm-hmm. Then I think all those decks would have plus one dig through time. Yeah, makes sense. That's my assessment. So the decks that look like they, in, in other words, dig through time is replacing the treasure cruises that you no longer can play. <laughs> so. From that perspective, it does look like, hey, we were trying to restrict treasure, treasure cruise. Presence of dig through time makes it hard to do that, so let's restrict dig through time, and we'll just finish the job. On the other hand, and there's a certain logic to that, and I understand that, and I think there's it's justifiable as far as it goes. But there is a suppose this. I mean, treasure cruise decks clearly dominated the vintage championship top eight last year, and they clearly dominated the format. I mean, pretty clearly dominated the format in the period up to its restriction, in my opinion. Right. Uh, the question is, what if Dig Through Time did not dominate the format? You know, it's questionable whether we could say it dominated the format. It's one of the reasons it looks like it didn't to some extent is because Treasure Cruise is taking oxygen away from Dig Through Time and has always done so. Yeah. Um, but what if, you know, just comparability, you know, so for example, let's say the only deck that run Dig Through Time was Delver and Mentor decks, right? Or let's just say Delver decks. And Delver decks, there was four of them in the championship last year and only one this year. You know, that. It, what if no other deck ran it? But that Delver deck in the top eight had the one treasure cruise and three digs. Mm-hmm. Is dig worthy of restriction? You could say yes in the sense that we wanted to finish the job with treasure cruise. But you could also say no in the sense that, and I think this is the stronger argument, that, look, there's only one Delver deck here. Clearly, the restriction of treasure cruise has weakened that deck sufficiently, or other metagame changes have shifts have weakened that deck sufficiently that we no longer need to take additional action to deal with that problem. Yeah. So I think that is sort of what you're getting at in terms of the empirical evidence may or may not be there. It's certainly not as strong as Treasure Cruise. On the other hand, we've already noted the fact that in the top 32 decks, every single blue deck had Dig Through Time except my deck. 
So I think that's a pretty strong and compelling evidence that Dig probably was worthy of restriction. Interestingly, though, that which you have just cited was not part of their explanation. Well, they don't. They never cite you know one event in their restricted list announcements. They never say no, the vintage I, champions. No, no. I mean conceptually, the omnipresence of Dig is not something. You know, the 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 fact that it's in a lot yeah. of different archetypes, it's alluded to, but but it's only implied. And when you're talking yeah. about an announcement of this nature, implication is a is a big difference. They say it's implied, it's implied that there were other draw engines that are no long no longer seeing play because of dig. That's what they say. And I take issue with that assessment. Yeah, what, I, what draw I, engines aside from Treasure yeah. Cruise, which is you know kind of a joke yeah. at this point, but what draw engines is dig replacing in all of these decks? I, I think in, you're exactly right. In, I, it's hold on, not, let's go. Let's go archetype by archetype, yeah. just through the top eight. Let's start. Let's do. Yeah. Let's be yeah. systemic that way. So Oath yeah, Druids, so. the winning deck. Did that deck have a draw engine before Dig and Treasure Cruise? No. No. There. It didn't it play. Have, yeah, it might have played. You know what? If I take that back, it probably would have been playing Jace's. Okay, Jace the Mind Sculptor. Uh, but this yeah. deck has two Jace the Mind Sculptors, so okay. Dig yeah. didn't replace them. You wouldn't play more yeah. than three in a deck like this, I don't think. No, 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 you're right. You're I think right. so. I think relative to Oath, this deck just plays more draw spells than it did before. It before it's possible that it's possible it he cut one Jace as a yeah, result, but yeah, yeah, right. but Dak Faden's competing for that space too, so right. That's true. So yep. I think I think it's reasonable to conclude that in this winning deck, this Oath deck, and Oath in general, Dig is not taking the place of another draw engine. No, it's not. It's supplementing other draw engines. It's not replacing them. All right. Exactly let's, right. Let's talk about a better case. Grixis control. Obviously, Dark Second. Confidant. Yeah. Obviously, Dark Confidant is the legacy draw engine for this deck, right? Yep. This was never a Gush deck. This was never a, well. I mean, it was a Thirst deck uh, in 2009. Um, what, what what am I missing? Knights Whisper occasionally, but that's yeah. fringe. I mean, you would never say that was a tentpole draw engine. Yeah. So basically, Bob. But didn't well, Bob wasn't Bob on the way out already? Before Treasure Cruise was restricted, or, yeah, uh, Bob was on the way out. This is this is, and it's worth noting this deck only has one dig anyway. So yeah. it's not really replacing anything. It's right. not replacing anything. And it has the two Jace three Dak. So if anything, Jason Dak yeah. are here, here. Okay, let's move on. And so, he needs he needs the more Dak. I mean, he, he needs the more Dak. To your point about Dak is actually the one who's eating up the other Jaces because he has these. Uh, he has the Notion Thieves. He needs yeah. Dak to. Oh, that's part the of the interaction there. Yeah. So let's go to Michael Herbig's fifth place deck. This is Mentor. Now, the notion that Dig Through Time is taking up draw engine space from this deck is fraught with the problem that this deck didn't exist before Dig Through Time. So we could sure. analyze it. I mean, it didn't. Yeah. It, this is a, but this is a well, gush deck. I, yeah, but, yeah. but this is a gush deck yeah, through yeah, and through. Yeah, and it's not like he's not running gush. He's got three gush. The only thing that you could say is that the, he didn't have Dig, he would run four gush. Yeah. So he's probably. not... This is not reverse. This is not reducing the diversity of draw. It's just changing the numbers a little bit. And and we should note that Mike has three deck and also a Jason the Mind Sculptor. So it could be that without Dig, he'd have a fourth Gush and maybe a second Jace, maybe a fourth deck. That's it. That's probably yeah, that's it. it. <laughs> this deck has all the draw engines. Yeah, I know. Jace, that's, what, that's why I love Mentor. Let's look at John Grazina's uh, Jeskai Planeswalker Control deck. Now he has three digs. This is also a deck that basically didn't exist in the past. So it's not like there's a past version of Jeskai Control to look yeah. back on and say, yeah. oh, this was like this. But what else does he yeah. have? He has fully four Dak Fadens and two Jace the Mind Sculptors and, and Narset. The only thing that I could imagine him having more of is more Jace. He could have and a maybe, third Jace or, or another 
I don't know what. Maybe he know. he could run like like one fact or one you know Gifts, uh, thirst a thirst. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, but what we're talking about here is Dig is replacing other potentially restricted <laughs> at the time, you know, draws. It's also the case. It's also the case that the second place deck could have had one thirst. Yeah. Um, easily, but it's but it, it's got such a diversity of draw engines to say that Dig is pushing out other draw engines just doesn't seem really well founded. Yeah. To so. Your point. And the last deck in the top eight is Delver, and obviously the same applies for Mentor. This deck has all the draw yeah. engines. I mean, this is Gush. Yeah. This is Dak Faden. This is Treasure Cruise and Dig. I mean, it doesn't have Jace, but th- this deck never runs Jace. This, so, yeah, yeah, Delver doesn't run Jace. The point, the point, as you said though, is that Dig is not pushing some other card out of this deck. It, it would have a fourth Gush probably, and maybe a third Dak. That would be it, basically. Yeah. So I completely agree with you. So I we've run down five discrete blue archetypes represented in the top eight, which is one of the fun features of this top eight. All of them with some amount of Digs, and in no case is Dig straight up replacing some other draw engine at best it's shaving the numbers on yeah. a couple of other cards but the elimination of the digs is not going to cause any of these decks to add a new card they're just going to pump up it the numbers a, some other draw spell they have it is an excellent point i mean think about the major draw engines in the format like just to sort of put a point on it right yeah um that dark confidant has kind of faded away of its own accord mm. not because it's been pushed out it just faded away uh jace the mind sculptor has faded Again, of its own accord. It's still very present, yep. but part of it is just Dak Faden is the better Planeswalker in the format right now yep. and has more synergies in overall effect. In terms of other sources of card advantage, Snapcaster Mage has been diminished somewhat, but that's, again, of its own effect, its own accord. Um, people have shaved the numbers of gushes, and that's just simply because you have so many draw engines now, you're trying to fit them all in. And people, the tendency is now three gush. Uh, so so I, I think you're exactly right. I don't think Dig is displacing anything in the format. If anything, we see all the blue draw engines and almost, you know, represented in this top 64. We have Standstill. Uh, I don't think we have Thoughtcast, but you can't say that Thoughtcast has been displaced because no. of Dig Through Time. That would just be completely absurd. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you could make the argument. It would been it would have been interesting, frankly, to see Dig and Thirst in this, you know, in the same format because, you know, as we're going to get to, I think that the, the sort of four gush, one treasure cruise, one dig. X Dak is now sort of firmly ensconced as a as an arc sort of a draw engine, mm-hmm. and I would love to have seen that compete against you know with more digs against the uh, thirst Tezzeret type draw engine. I I find it hilarious that given the the notion of dig through time replacing draw engines in vintage and uh, reducing diversity. That case applies more to Dak Faden than it does to Dig Through Time. There are 11 digs in this top eight, and there are 14 Daks. Yeah. Every deck we listed yeah. that has Dig has Dak in equal or greater numbers, with one exception, three versus two. Right. But that's hilarious. And, yeah, that's and to be really... perfectly honest, to be perfectly honest, if you put your analytical, analytical hat on, which of those two cards is actually hampering diversity more than the other? It's, clear, it's clearly Dak Faden. Because Dak yeah. Faden prescribes far more about your deck than Dig does. He prescribes your colors, your mana base, your positioning in certain matchups, not just the workshop matchup, but in other matchups as well. It's it's Dak has a far larger impact on the format. And how you can't you can't the, make a case many, for diversity that doesn't put Dak higher on this list than Dig. Isn't it also true that every single every single blue deck in the top thirty two had Dak? Is that the case? I think that's the case. There could be one or two exceptions, but it's far and away the case 
I think I believe that is the case. I believe I think Paul Mastriano told me that. He said Dak was everywhere. Um, so yeah, I mean, I there are a couple of there are a couple of decks like Bomberman. Bomberman is a sort of deck is a blue deck that doesn't play Dak, but nearly everyone else does. Yeah, yeah. Every sorry, every blue deck with red has Dak. Yeah. yeah. No, it's it's absolutely true. Of course, restricting Dak at the time you're trying to weaken workshops would have been odd to say the least. But <laughs> but, yeah, but it shines it shines a light on the the. the the strategy that they've taken here and the, the tactic that they've taken. It also underscores the, maybe the holes in their reasoning. Yeah. Isn't this, it, again, <laughs> it is not to say the, dig, the restricting Deku time was unwarranted or invalid or a bad decision, but look, we have to pay attention to what their reasoning is. These are important policy decisions, and mm-hmm. if their reasoning is flawed or problematic, it's, I think it's our job to investigate that. Well, I think we've... We've teased out about as much as we can from Dig Through Time here. But in our analysis of the top eight and the five different archetypes for blue that are there, it seems pretty obvious what those decks would do in response to this scenario. And that is yeah. to just flesh out the other numbers of their draw engine cards and move Absolutely. on. Yeah, in fact, can we just, without taking up too much more time, can we just do that right now? So, so Oath, Brian Kelly's Oath, he has uh, first place, he has two Dig. He can <laughs> cut one Dig. And add, it's hard to say what he would add because his deck is so unconventional. The fourth force of will. <laughs> yeah. I, now I want to point something out. He's the one, he's the one listed to have the treasure cruise. But yeah, so uh, you could, there you go. You could add treasure cruise. Well, in the, in you, the second, you could you could do he, that. He might not. But I would point out that Oath of Druids as an archetype is one deck where the utility of of dig is amplified in that's the whole putting cards on the bottom of your library element. No, right. So it's not just not. card drawing. Yeah, they're actually making use of the bottom of the library element there. I think that right. perhaps another Planeswalker is a better replacement. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and also not just the bottom of the library, but you want to be selective about your draw because you don't want to necessarily draw into one of your creatures. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, yes, yes. Second place, the second place deck could easily just add another Jace. Um, yeah. for, oh, no, sorry, it only has one dig anyway, so it's completely unaffected. Yeah, I so. will note. I didn't. Mention, I didn't mention this when you were going through it, but Michael Harburg's fifth place deck, which is the next blue deck. He, he um, I'm sorry. He only has two dig through time, mm-hmm. so he could he could easily just cut one of them and add the fourth gush. That's an easy fix. Yeah, that's a one for um, one. The deck would hardly even notice that change, honestly. <laughs> yeah, John, his his uh, planeswalker control deck would have to lose two digs. So he he might have to add I don't know a third Jace and then maybe like another Snapcaster Mage, something like that. He only has three preordains also. That's a possibility. Fourth preordain. Yeah. Ryan Everhart, simple thing here. Uh, two digs, cut, add one, add the fourth gush, and you know it's not hard to add say I don't know another Monster Storm or whatever. Or another DAC. A third DAC would be totally reasonable. Yeah, anything like that. Yeah. So it's easy. Yeah. The restriction of dig is going to have to some extent, a pretty minimal impact. Yeah. So here's what they have to say about Thirst for Knowledge. In 2009, blue-based artifact decks were dominating the format. There were not many options of cards to restrict, and we chose Thirst for Knowledge. This led to a much healthier metagame. However, six years later, a lot of cards have been added, and the metagame is very different. The former dominating strategies are barely seen at all. The reason for the restriction is no longer evident. Thirst for Knowledge is unrestricted. Seven sentences and quite a bit of information. 
I'd have to say for the first sentence, 2009 blue-based artifact decks were dominating the format is completely true. In fact, we have incredibly solid empirical evidence to establish it. And they admitted that they had difficulty deciding mm. what to restrict. It wasn't obvious what to restrict out of that Tezzeret deck because you could restrict Tezzeret and it would be fine with just one. Thirst mm. for Knowledge was the only, I think, really obvious card besides something. The only other option was something like Mana Drain. Um, and the, the third sentence is yeah. also true. This led to a much healthier metagame. It was much, much healthier. Um, and they said six years later, in fact, the restriction of Thirst led to the rise of open the rise to Dark Confidant becoming really, really popular for a couple of years. And there was a period, I think, for three years after the restriction of Thirst, where Dark Confidant had won every vintage championship, you may remember. Hiromichi Itao, Owen Turnwald, right. and then right. uh, Mark Lodigra. Um They said, our, the fourth sentence, however, six years later, a lot of cards have been added and the metagame is different. The former, And then the former dominating strategies are barely seen at all. I think it is absolutely true that a lot of cards have been added and the metagame is very different. But the question is, mm-hmm. is it different in the ways that are most relevant to the dominance of thirst for knowledge and that's what we need to discuss but why don't what, what do you what do you think about those last three sentences i constructed a short list of cards that have been printed since thirst was restricted let me just run through it real quick just for the benefit of our audience lodestone golem jace the mind sculptor Flusterstorm, dak faden snapcaster mage jace friends prodigy mental misstep notion thief phyrexian revoker dig through time treasure cruise cataxian probe crystal brand Deathrite, shaman monastery mentor young pyromancer delver of secrets abrupt decay tasker the golden fang blood gas grafdigger's cage scalding tarnish <laughs> rainforest and nature's claim when when they say that they have printed a whole lot of new cards and added it. to the format they are not joking <laughs> That is, and that's just a list of stuff that's frequently played right. today. I probably left off a dozen, but all of that having been said, I think there's one card that's not on that list and not specifically mentioned in their rationale that is the biggest factor, and that is Gush. The reason, and we've identified this over the course of the last year or more, the reason that these big mana blue decks were pushed out of the format was not Chalice of the Void. <laughs> it was primarily the Gush decks, the low mana high card quality, the virtual card advantage decks, the Delvers and lately the Mentors of the world, those are the decks that pushed out simple Grixis control from the metagame. And it's and so while all of those new cards are highly relevant and they have shaped the modern metagame, I think the biggest thing we have to account for is the effect and the tension between Big Man yeah. Blue decks and Gush Aggro. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. It's interesting that you, you mentioned this because... Thirst for Knowledge has a very interesting and fascinating history in the format. And I think for our audience, many of you who've been playing <laughs> Magic or Vintage for the last couple of years, but maybe not it's quite as long as we have, I think it's an important history to be aware of. Thirst for Knowledge actually comes into the format at the same time as Chalice of the Void. It's a, it's a, a Mirrodin spell. Which is awesome. Um, and it's been, you know, in 2003. And Thirst for Knowledge came in and was, you know, for a while, a pretty powerful and potent draw engine but when it came into the format the dominant do you remember what the dominant draw engine was kevin no remind me intuition ak right intuition ak was the dominant draw engine in the format it had won the 2003 vintage championship it was the most popular draw engine and when thirst came in it was like okay fact was restricted so now we've got these two amazing draw engines and we actually needled around with our sort of we call gothenburg goth slaver we put both of them in this deck but we thirst for knowledge right in and it was, you know, seen as sort of second best in, in the immediate printing period, you know, compared to Intuition AK. In, in very short order, though, within, I'd say, a year and a half, it was considered the best draw engine in the format. 
And then GIFs was printed, and, and Thirst kind of subsided. The, thir- the fir- early GIFs decks, you may recall, were four Thirst, two GIFs decks. And it was my mean deck that completely you know, right. uh, changed that formula with four GIFs in zero Thirst. And, uh, and then Merchant Scroll, and then, of course, Gush was unrestricted, and Thirst was pushed entirely out of the format. But in 2004, Thirst actually won the Vintage Championship. So between t- 2003 and 2004, you saw a transition from Intuition AK being the best draw blue, the default blue draw engine to Thirst. And, and Thirst was only eventually displaced because of GIFs. And then GIFs was restricted. And Thirst kind of had it muddled along. It was doing pretty well. But in 2007, they decided to unrestrict Gush. And you know what happened to the Thirst decks? They disappeared. Because you had Gush, Brainstorm, <laughs> Ponder, and Merchant Scroll as this yeah. dominant draw engine. And in 2008, they restricted... There's uh, Gush and Thirst for Knowledge seem to be okay, except three months after they restricted Thirst, a pretty profound change happened. They eroded Time Vault, and at the same time, they were re- mm-hmm. sorry, they eroded Time Vault when they restricted Gush, but they also that fall printed Tezzeret, and so you had the emergence from October 2009 until mid 2010. You had nine months in which basically this deck dominated the format. Four Force of Will, four Mana Drain, four Thirst for Knowledge, two Tezzeret, one Tinker, one Time Vault, one Voltaic Key, one Yawgmoth's Will, one Demonic Tutor, etc., etc. That deck, you know, that's basically 55 mm-hmm. card shell with about five rotating cards, depending on who, who you are. <laughs> that deck just dominated the format, and and that was you. You said nine to ten, but it was eight to nine, right? Yeah, sorry. It was 2008 to 2009 because right, this I'm was then restricted in the middle of 2009. For a nine-month period from middle right. from when thirst from when Tezzeret was printed until the following summer, thirst for knowledge decks that basic deck just dominated the format. Yeah. And and we have a lot of decks that we can talk about. Kevin's dug them up to share with you and, and talk about. But the key point is that basically thirst for knowledge. Although it won the Vintage Championship in 2004, it had it was basically an up or down card. It was and it was in a kind of a steady state, a steady state background. Yeah. You know, it was a, just a, a common vintage tool. But the card basically from 2003 mm-hmm. until 2008 was just a fair, important, very useful, very good draw engine. It was not until they eroded Time Vault and they printed Tezzeret that Thirst for Knowledge went from being fair to blatantly unfair and dominant. That was the key trigger. And so when they talk about in the elements of the format, what's changed and what hasn't, the question is, will Thirst for Knowledge bring Time Vault and Tezzeret decks or Time Vault type decks back to the center of the format and, or not? That's the risk. That's the potential downside. And it's interesting because for a time, Time Vault decks, or especially decks with Tinker, Time Vault, and Yawgmoth's Will, who are the trifecta of evil villains and haymakers and vintage, those were kind of the backbone of the format. And even after Thirst was restricted, they still persisted as part of the backbone, even through Mark Lanigra's Vintage Championship run. But those cards have faded, and they faded fast. And Yawgmoth's Will is nowhere near what it once was. Mm-hmm. It was the most dominant restricted card strategically in the format for years, for well over a decade. And, and Thirst for Knowledge was a card that, if I was going to argue against unrestricting it, that makes those cards central again. And I kind of, you know, my initial reaction was, whoa, that's a big risk. It's a year ago, I would have said you're crazy to unrestrict Thirst. Now that Gush has <laughs> Treasure Cruise and Dig Through Time as its partners along with Dak, it no longer seems quite as risky. I think the Gush decks can probably maintain competitive balance a little bit more with Thirst decks. But, you know, 
do you really want? I mean, it's been so long since Time Vault, Young Muswell, and Tinker have really dominated the format. Is that something we really want? Well, we're going to find out. <laughs> well, in addition to Gush, which has a powerful impact on this whole scenario, there are a couple of critical cards that impact just the pure deck construction element of it. And that is, well, there's a couple of angles here I want to attack. One of them is yep. Flusterstorm, right? While you might point out that Flusterstorm could easily be used by a Thirst deck to get its Thirst to resolve, Flusterstorm is a much more powerful tactical choice in low mana cantrip style decks and gush decks because thirst costs three yeah. gush costs zero when you're in the middle of a, a stack fight and that gives all the advantage to the gush player basically tactically if you want to protect your thirst with fust fluster storm you need blue blue two and in order to fight through that with let's say a gush and a, and a fluster storm your opponent needs just blue <laughs> that's a huge difference and so I predict that a lot of people will try Thirst Out, and as soon as they run into Delver or Mentor, they're going to have their hearts broken as they try to win these stack fights, and and these, these Gush decks well, just have an inherent actually, advantage that I, way. I think it's, you make a lot of good points, but I also want to point out that Thirst has an inherent advantage against a Gush deck, and that is that although Gush is an instant, it's not sure. really a card you play on your opponent's turn. It's, it's, it's some many ways it's a sorcery in a lot of ways. Yes. But Thirst for Knowledge is the ultimate in it's a card you can play at the exact right opportunity. <laughs> your opponent's end step, your opponent's upkeep, your opponent's second main phase, your opponent's first main phase, you, when your opponent breaks a mm -hmm. fetch land. You know, so although I, I hear what you're saying, I think Thirst has a flexibility that allows it to navigate those waters better than almost anything else. Yeah. And the second point then, you're completely right, the second point then is going back and looking at the environment that existed when Thirst was at its prime and TurboTez was at its prime. Um, I shouldn't call it TurboTez. TurboTez is the next iteration after this, but Tezzeret was at its prime. The The format included aggro decks, but they were many and varied aggro decks, and they weren't gush-based aggro decks, and they didn't have creatures the likes of Delver of Secrets, Young Pyromancer, and or Snapcaster Mage, and or Monastery Mentor. The creatures these days have become faster and bigger threats on their own. Back then, the best thing you yeah. could do for two mana was Tarmogoyf, which is just <laughs> comical by today's standards. Tarmogoyf hasn't seen play in Vintage for years now, and there's a reason for that. <laughs> and that's because when your opponent goes second turn young Pyromancer, and even if you have an aggressive thirst on that turn, if they even fight you over it, let's say they force and you force back, or you, I, I don't know, but if they yeah. fight you over it, they're getting a ton of value. And then in their next turn, they untap with that gush and access to that other cantrip, maybe it's a probe, maybe they get their flusterstorm this turn. The combination of those factors on a turn-over-turn basis means the tempo decks do what they've always done, which is prey on control decks. And even though these thirst decks will be combo control decks, most control decks in Vintage yeah. are combo control decks. There are very few hard well, control decks in Vintage. I mean, Landstill and this Planeswalker control are there, but... There's Blue, there's blue Moon. I, I don't know. There are a lot of control decks, but yeah. There are also a lot of combo but control. You, you can list them, but as slices of the metagame, they're very small. Well, the top eight we just talked about, there was quite a few. Land, them. At least two in the... Well, the top eight had... Uh, it had one. It had uh, the Planeswalker control. John Grazina and the second place deck. I guess you... Oh, bother. I don't... I, I, I would count, not count Grixis Thieves as hard control. That's combo control. Fair enough. But we're splitting hairs. 
Yeah, but my point is simply that back when this deck dominated, or ones like it with Four Thirst and Tezzeret, they did not have to compete with the kind of efficiency of threats and answers that are featured in today's uh, aggro control decks. And it's not like these Four Thirst decks have much greater haymakers to counteract that. They don't. The haymakers are not significantly different these days than they were back then. They're mostly the same haymakers, uh, Notion Thief and Jace the Mind Sculptor notwithstanding. But the format has de- has determined that it can defeat Jace the Mind Sculptor, broadly speaking. And so, you know, Young Pyromancer does a good job, and and uh, Delver of Secrets does a good job of defeating Young of uh, Jace the Mind Sculptor all by themselves. So my my point is simply that the the collision course that Thirst decks and Gush decks have. I think preemptively favors the Gush decks for a number of reasons. The Gush decks cards have gotten far better over time than the Thirst decks cards have, and it'll be it'll be it'll be up to the Thirst deck developers, all of you out there listening to this, to find that key pivot point, that thing that Bobby Green's second place deck did to put pressure on people, such that you're not just using Thirst to hey let's let's turtle around and draw some cards, but you need to find the right strategic positioning in the metagame to really make that card sing. Well, I think you are right. There is a collision coming between the Gush, the Gush, I'm going to call it the Gush Delve Dak deck and the Thirst Yogwell Tinker <laughs> Keyball deck. And, Don't forget yeah, Dak. Dak and both, I guess. <laughs> uh, you know, and part of it will come from exactly how the Thirst deck is designed, right? Because the Thirst deck, yeah. you know, part of its, its greatest strength is going to be the Haymaker. Thirst for Knowledge is a card that synergizes with the Haymakers better than any other card. Perhaps even Gush. I mean, gets. Because, because Thirst, just yeah. look at some of the examples. First of all, Thirst for Knowledge allows you to deposit Tinker targets from your hand back into your library, like Lightsteel Colossus or your graveyard. It allows you to um, deal with, it allows you to uh, deposit the Time Vault combo into the graveyard. It builds your graveyard for Yawgmoth's Will, and it accelerates you into those cards by drawing three cards at an instant speed. Potentially on turn one with Mox Mox Land. Um, so it has tremendous synergy mm-hmm. with the Haymakers. I, I think part of the power over Delver decks is going to be those Haymakers. You know, Key Vault is something that's very hard for Delver decks to stop as currently constructed, in my opinion. I think Key Vault can race with Thirst and the right components, can race Mentor Delver decks. The question is, um, mm-hmm. you know, how those can be designed. I, I don't think that we're going to see, you know, so let's just talk about a couple options. I mean, the most obvious deck that be completely revived is the one that got thirst restricted. And I should just mention that because of the timing, the thirst deck never really had a chance to show up in a vintage championship top eight because it was printed after Tesseret was printed after the the two thousand seven sorry the two thousand eight vintage championship. Um, although it, the thirst deck did control slaver did was the second place deck uh, in the two thousand eight vintage championship, but it was restricted before the 2009 Vintage Championship. But the, key, the key point, though, is that the, the obvious place to start in terms of rebuilding Thirst X is Tezzeret, but it's certainly not the only place. I mean, Control Slaver with Goblin Welder mm-hmm. has, is, is probably the longest used home for Thirst for Knowledge. And then we've seen a lot of other Thirst decks. I mean, Bomberman is, could certainly consider using Thirst as a draw engine, given the plethora of artifacts it mm-hmm. has. Um, and... Um, I also think that Thirst can show up in a lot of other decks. I mean, we at one point designed a de- an Oath deck that used Thirst as a draw engine. Um, anyway, so Thirst can show up a lot of places, just like Gush, and I wouldn't be surprised if it does. Uh, in terms of com- combating uh, Delver, the Gush decks, 
I think probably the strongest place to start is probably something more like Steel City Vault, which is a more combo and aggressive oriented uh, time vault deck. Uh, you know, the, the whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it, the Sin City Vault, the Steel City Vault, the lot, you know, the Angel City Vault, all those decks have really strong potential against Elder decks. And with four Thirst for Knowledge or Unrestricted Thirst for Knowledge, that's a gigantic boost for those guys. And it just so happens that those are the kind of decks that benefit from the Chalice Restriction, right. like you alluded to earlier. Those are the kind of nine or ten yeah. box decks. Yeah, they, I mean, they all. From an archetype standpoint, yeah, from an archetype standpoint, that deck might be the biggest winner out of this whole thing, given that it. It didn't use dig, basically, or it, you know, it was a one or two dig kind of deck at most. Uh, it loves not having chalice in play, and it can really and abuse it, thirst yeah, for knowledge. It loves DAC, and it has four, three or four mock yeah. nobles. Yeah, yep. it's worth looking at. Steve, we talked about gush, of course, big, big presence in the metagame these days, multiple decks. Another card though that really throws this whole historical perspective into a cocked hat, I think, is Phyrexian Revoker. Phyrexian Revoker is another key card that was not around when Thirst and Association Tezzeret decks were at their heyday. And it really is the kind of card that would give Control Slaver fits, yes. obviously, because that deck is just almost entirely predicated on winning the game with activated abilities. Tezzeret a little less so. I mean, any Tezzeret deck worth their salt, I think, can get around that. But it's just one more speed bump. No, I think that's a really good point. I mean, uh, you know, how are, how are these strategies going to deal with a lot of the cards that have been printed since they were dominant. I mean, I, I think Tezzeret can be a part of the equation, mm-hmm. but it certainly can't be as central as it was before. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and a couple of other examples of those cards are Abrupt Decay. Now, we know that Bug is not a dominant strategy these days, but man, I would not want to be playing a Tezzeret-based deck or a Control Slaver-based deck in an Abrupt Decay matchup, necessarily. And also a big impediment to control slaver making a return is simply mental misstep because goblin welder between mental misstep and phyrexian revoker almost every deck by today's standards is pre-sideboarded against your welders in a way that wasn't definitely wasn't the case back in 2009 the control slaver deck if there is one it's going to have to use mental misstep as well and it's going to have to have a plan that's not nearly as reliant on welder as the older versions of that deck were i mean obviously that deck can supplement with the regular haymakers like tinker and yog will but Goblin Welder was so much more reliable to get in play and leave in play in 2004 through 9 than it is today. At, not to mention Swords to Plowshares, which was basically not a part of Vintage in 2004 <laughs> through 9. That's all true. I, I think the starting place, though, is probably to look at uh, Rich Shea's Season 1 Vintage Super League Control Slaver deck with um, with Dax and Knight's Whisper. And, and you're just going to probably go with Four Thirsts there. Um no, I think that's probably a strong starting point. What do you think, if you're trying to build that deck, if you're trying to build Rich Shea's deck in the Four Thirst environment, what were the ratios that he played for Knight's Whisper and, J- and Dak? Did he play four Knight's Whisper and two Dak? He played a three Dak, four Mental Misstep, and four Knight's Whisper. Okay. Well, I don't know if you can immediately just turn those Knight's Whispers into Thirsts. It's a more sophisticated right. question than just that. But it Absolutely. seems like a reasonable starting Absolutely. point, to your point. You know, it makes me laugh. Again, thinking about our comparison of Dig Through Time to Dak Faden, is Dak Faden also just pushing out thirsts now? I mean, are you going to have to start with three thirsts and three be. Daks in it that could deck? Really be. I, I, I'm starting to get the feeling that all the logic that was applied to Dig Through Time is going to, and it's just going to inevitably result in <laughs> Dak getting restricted, which is, I mean, it's laughable, but I think it really shines a light on how there, there 
analysis or their rationale posted for dig through times restriction was it's at also, best well, incomplete. Certainly the case is there <laughs> and their re- reasoning or their presented reasoning is always insufficient. But, uh, yeah, but it, it's pretty much true. And yeah. we know we're, we, we do want to give them the benefit of the doubt that their opinion is not reduced to just these right. couple sentences. But it's interesting, though, that in every one of these decks, Dak does at least two things. I mean, certainly in all these decks, he's an anti he's an anti workshop tactic. But in the dig decks, he plays a very important mm-hmm. role in helping you fuel delve. And in the control slaver deck, mm-hmm. he plays a very important even better. Yeah, even better role. Yeah, uh, Dak. I mean, he slices and dices. There's a reason why he's one of the most popular blue cards after Force of Will and Mental Misstep. But um, I just think it's funny from a deck construction standpoint. All the things that you want Thirst to do, Dak does all of it except be at instant speed. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> and he's not. He's not truly a card advantage engine like Thirst is. But I was obviously. answering your question about Rich Shea's deck list. I was referring to his uh, first trimester deck list. His second trimester deck list actually switched the ratios of Night's Whisper and Dak. And four Dak and three Night's Whisper. So. <laughs> see? You see? That's yeah, what I'm talking tough. about. These, this control slaver concept already exists. You can already play the four Dak. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. It, it's worth noting that has anyone made a top eight with that list outside of Rich's performance well, in the VSL? Mark- there might be, there might be one, but Rich I don't recall. Rich was running up against the the. I mean, remember the Delve cards were printed right then and there, so he was right. running up against that, and now that's gone. Not gone, but at least greatly diminished. Well, and it seems pretty clear that anyone building a thirst and deck based slaver deck is probably going to have the one dig through time at least, probably no, the I, one I treasure cruise right. also. Yeah, like I said, the, the gush deck is four gush, one dig, one uh, one dig, one treasure cruise X deck. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, it's funny, we're getting back to, now that we've got two new restricted editions of blue draw spells to the restricted list, your base blue deck now starts what? Ancestral Brainstorm, Treasure Cruise, Dig, Ponder? <laughs> is no, that, no, is no, that no, how your no. blue yeah, deck and starts? <laughs> and then, and then you got to start with two deck at least, right? You don't play less than two, but probably three. <laughs> <laughs> two or three deck. So your base blue deck starts with those seven cards, and then you get to add a draw engine. The notion of any card pushing quote unquote another draw engine out of a deck is almost laughable at yeah. this point i mean we let we joked about uh, how awesome the mentor deck is because it just yeah. plays all the draw engines well that's i mean it's true but it's also kind of a joke because it's just gush with the requisite decks and then shoehorning in two or three digs and then all the other restricted cards so at this point what are the draw engines in a, in a mentor deck they're just yeah. gush and dac <laughs> right and so your thirst deck is just going to be thirst and dac Right, and is there going to be another draw engine in Vintage? Well, there, I mean, there's there's Standstill in the Landstill decks. Somewhat of one. Notion yeah. Thief is somewhat of a draw engine, but how many Notion yeah. Thief do people play? Yeah, two at most. Yeah. I mean, right? Jace, Jace the Mindsculptor is the other major draw engine. The JMA. That's true, Jace. Once you get past Gush and Dak and theoretically Thirst, although it's up for debate, then yeah, Jace the Mind Sculptor is probably the, the third slash fourth place draw engine in Vintage these days. And he's, his numbers are dramatically down. Jace is going the maybe not all the way, but Jace is going the way of yeah, the confidant, is. right? <laughs> I mean, it, there was a time when people were cramming three and four Jaces into as many decks as they could a couple years back. There was a time when we wondered Jace was going to be restricted because it was the dominant draw engine. Remember That's that? right. I do. I remember you and I standing in, at Gen Con between rounds, I think, at Vintage Champs. Or maybe it was the day before, but we were talking about, man, we just want to put four <laughs> Jace in all these decks. 
That's funny. And I, I don't expect Jace to fully disappear because he's far more diverse in his function than, than Dark Confidant is. And also Dark Confidant has lots of other factors conspiring against him. What with creatures and additional removal and the increasing mana cost of cards in our decks, thanks to Gush and Treasure Cruise. So there's lots of factors against Bob. But Jace may be the lowest he's going to be at any given point right about now with the energized environment vis-a-vis Thirst for Knowledge. Because, I mean, to the point of having selection of, of draw engines, you do have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to building a good blue deck now. Because we, I just rattled off, what, seven restricted yeah. cards that you can start with. Or no, sorry, five restricted cards plus a couple of decks. It's hard to find room for another four of and then also play some Jace the Mind Sculptors. That's a dozen you know, cards there, already. And you can, your deck's got to have more than that draw you, engines in it, right? You kind of did the era of vintage where people mix and match draw engines. You may recall before Thirst was restricted, mm-hmm. Paul Mastriano was battling with decks that had, like, I think they had three or three or four Bobs and three or four Thirst right right before they were it was restricted. He, he mm-hmm. won. Bob plus Thirst was rare, but it's a it's a potent combination. Yeah, and then Bob just replaced Thirst in the Tezzeret decks once Thirst was restricted. But Bob has has largely disappeared, and that's in no small part. I mean, part of the reason Bob has been driven from the format is because of the Delver decks. The Delver decks use the burn and plow yeah. and just you know and then punish you for losing life terribly on, on this in the scale yeah. and sort of way in which it happens with, with dark continent which echoes what i said earlier about the state of aggro decks in the 2004 through 9 era the aggro decks that those tesseract decks at the time were facing could not punish you as well as delver can these days and for one the creatures weren't as good and also you just mentioned lightning bolt it Back in 2004 through nine, playing Lightning Bolt would be yeah. would have been kind of laughable. Yeah. Like, oh, you got bo- you got bolts. You also got Kurt Apes in that deck. Well, that- <laughs> I mean, it's it's funny, but that's really how Bolt was viewed for a long time. You couldn't, you didn't, your deck was not fast enough for Bolt to be legitimate with reach, and also you didn't have Snapcaster and, Mages and to replay of the them. Bolt rose was because of the printing of Planeswalker. Jason Sculptor drove that exactly. Impact. Jace yeah. basically invented exactly. lightning bolt and vintage, yeah. <laughs> Reinvented, I should say. So, yeah. so I think we have enough background analysis yeah. to begin with our sort of effects and prediction. Archetype level, what do you see happening? Yeah. Uh, I think that crash course that I just described about gush decks versus thirst decks is going to play itself out in testing yeah. and then on the battlefield for yeah. the next couple of months. Um, I think I some people have said... I read a lot of comments in the Mana Drain that part of their point was that people are going to shave uh, sideboard hate for workshop decks. And I genuinely don't think that's going to happen. I don't think people are going to be like, yeah. get these ingot chewers out of here. I think workshops, workshops just because they lose one to three chalices does not make them that much less powerful game yeah, over that game. Would be a, that would be a just because your opponent doesn't draw a chalice that game, yeah, it's still the same workshop deck, basically, and you're still getting it run over. So... You might adjust your deck main deck a little bit. You know, the, the, as we said, the the Moxon get a little bit more reliably good. But broadly speaking, you can't shave workshop hate just yeah, because I of this. Agree with you. And if you were the sort of yeah, and if you were the sort of deck that had three digs in it, you just got worse against workshops than they did got worse against you, in my estimation. My Jeskai mentor deck with three digs. It loses out in that equation, in my opinion, because I'd much rather give them their three chalices back <laughs> so have two more digs. Yeah, because dig, 
just, and just so everyone understands, dig is a huge weapon against sphere effects because you can delve away the cost of the spheres, and it's a huge weapon against tangle wire because it's one of the few first for knowledge. It's one of the few good instant speed draw spells that's playable right now, at least last week. Uh, and because you can announce it under a tangle wire, it gets a huge utility. Those things in combination meant I was always really happy to draw a dig against workshops. I didn't want all three of them, of course, but I was really yeah, happy to see that, that first one. Actually, make DAC more dominant. Because you you need Dak now to find your delve spell, your one of your two delve spells, and and Gush is so good with <laughs> Dak that it actually I could see you know not only just upticking. I mean for the Daks like Ryan Eberhardt, I don't remember how many Daks he ran, but for for decks that were basically three Gush, two Dak, let's say three Dig, one Treasure Cruise, the obvious the obvious conversion is yeah. then three Dak, up up a Dak, up a Gush, you know, and minus two Dig. So that's that's kind of direct. You're yeah, definitely right. Said, and you did get, you, yeah, you did get the ratio right in Ryan's particular eighth place champs deck. Yeah, two decks, three gush is an obvious opportunity yeah. for uptick for both. Uh, but the, so you're talking about predictions, though. My, my point is simply that I don't think this change, even though it's important, I don't think it upsets the natural order of things in vintage too much, vis-a-vis Doug Dig versus Chalice. Yeah, in terms of the Comer school decks trumping the Weissman school decks to simplify it. Yes, I agree. So don't everybody go throw out your sideboards yeah. from last week and, and trash the deck or whatever. Look at the alternatives for the digs and the chalices, test them out, and don't don't rebuild just because of this. But the Thirst decks, it's really interesting because I still feel like all the Gush decks are favored against the Future State Thirst decks by default. That's not to say that someone can't improve those Thirst decks and make really good ones, but... By default, I think we're favored. But I also think that Bobby Green's second place deck from Champs is a really interesting starting point for looking yeah. at Thirst. Because as you said beforehand, you thought there was an opportunity for the Haymakers. You thought there was an opportunity for Key Vault and its ilk. And I I think Thirst obviously dovetails with that strategy. Obviously, Bobby proved that that kind of deck can perform well, even in a huge field. And I just say, if you're a gush deck, watch out for that. I think that um, so let's go kind of arc by archetype by archetype. Uh, I think in general, mm-hmm. though, the archetype that we're describing as let's just say four thirst or three or four thirst, you know, two or three dac, maybe more dac, whatever. And with time vault and yogmuel and tinker, I mm-hmm. think that and archetype Tezzeret, maybe Tezzeret. I think that archetype is probably going to be within nine months tier one. That's my prediction. In the short term, I think it's going to be tier 1.5. In the long run, I think it's going to be proven to be a tier 1. Um, and, okay. I mean, part of it is because all three restrictions cut in the same direction, right? Restricting dig, so you're, ta- you're weakening the predator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Restrict chalice, you're weakening a predator. Unrestrict thirst, you're boosting the archetype. Mm-hmm. So it's all one, you know, well-paved welcome mat to, uh, to that archetype. I think also that... We're going to see a lot of variants of that, much like we do gush decks with Delver, Mentor, and so on. But I think the variants are going to be the Steel City Vault version, which is probably going to end up being the premier version. We're going to see a Control Slaver. We're going to see a more controlling Tezzeret. We're going to see Thirst in a smattering of other decks, including Bomberman and Oath, and other things like that. But I think it's going to show up in a lot of places, and people are going to test in a lot of places. I also think, in terms of archetypes, I think Belcher gets more than marginally better. If it goes from like being a marginal fringe deck, it becomes maybe, I don't know what you want to call it, like a tier two or something. And all those archetypes get a nice little mm-hmm. boost. I don't want to overstate the boost, but it's a boost. They all get a boost. All those decks that just would die to Chalice, they get a nice boost. <laughs> um, 
I don't, um, right, right. And then I also think that um, I don't think workshop decks are actually going to be that harmed. I don't just don't see it happening. I think that you know if you again look at Brian DeMars's you know in in Paul Mastriano's deck, they lose two chalices, one chalice. That deck doesn't change at all, just about at all. Yeah. And as we discussed as a result of champs, that deck was the best performing subset yes. of the workshop archetype. I think so. the only thing that changes for that deck is it needs to have... I mean, Graph Digger's Cage becomes even more important in combating oaths. And I think um, that deck is going to maybe need to consider some things like Witchbane Orb and stuff that we've talked about. Because it, that deck was already mm-hmm. weak to uh, Hercules Recall, but now it's even weaker. Because Chalice, of the, Chalice for Two is... Basically, Chalice, I think Hercules Recall is one of the biggest winners in, in all of this, especially with the restriction of Chalice, because <laughs> now all you can do to stop at Hercules is besides, I mean, it's basically Spheres, unless you use a specialized tactic, Leyline of Sanctity or mm-hmm. Wolfman Orbs. Right. I was Don't forget Orbs of Warning. Yeah. So, so, uh, <laughs> Please, somebody, Orbs of Warning. Come on, prove us right. Uh, so we've got... <laughs> We need to pat our stats. <laughs> so at the archetype level, what are your predictions? What do you see from what I just said? Uh, everything you said is reasonable, but I think you omitted another big winner, and it speaks to the speaks to a whole bunch of things. <clears throat> if you are a workshop player, you are suddenly deprived of three Chalice of the Void, which you are very happy with, and you're trying to play a Mana Denial strategy, you suddenly can't prevent your opponents from putting all those mocks that they've been playing all along into play, what's the next best thing? Null Rod. Null Rod is no stranger to workshops. It was not a good performer. The Null Rod family of shops did not perform well at champs, per se, and we talked about it. Terra Nova and their Terra Nuvo <laughs> did not place as highly as Hangerback. It did not convert as well as Hangerback Agri did, but they're still there. The NYSE team, the Farinos, Nick Detweiler, they had main deck null rods in addition to some other interlocking technology. That deck is hurt very little by this. In fact, it actually wins a little bit. And I also am of the belief that if Hangerback Aggro is truly where you want to be, I'm sorry, truly the best performing workshop variant inside that family of decks, then I want to be on the null rod deck. I want to be on the deck that turns Hangerback Walker into a weaker creature and turns Ravager into a, a creature with no abilities, basically. Well, a triggered ability, but... So... Uh, my point is, is that Null Rod is also a big winner. It, it's, it's a good logical replacement for Chalice for that same function. It has other upside in the format, and it's already a proven card I in the format. I completely agree with you. I think it's a really keen observation. I mean, the, the top performing decks were all Hanger Back and Arcbound Ravager in terms of workshop decks. Null Rod not only yeah. is this fantastic tool against the big mana decks that we can anticipate are going to emerge, but it's also great against those strategies. How does Null Rod? How does Null Rod? Look at Rich Shea's. Yeah, Rich Shea's deck is completely shut down by Null Rod. (laughs) Hangerback, Walker, Arcbound Ravager, Triskelion, Sword of Fire and Ice. Are you kidding? I would hate to play against Null Rod with Rich's deck. Pulled out the Forge Master from a monstrous Tinker generator into a 3 5 uh, Iron Root Tree Folk. You know. <laughs> I mean, it's it's yeah, a, li- yeah, a exactly. liability. <laughs> a wall. <laughs> it's so true. You might as well just put yeah. defender on the thing. <laughs> the thing that Nalrod does. The creatures the artifacts lose activated abilities. If those artifacts are named <laughs> Cold the Forge Master, they also gain <laughs> defender. 
<laughs> no, we joke. But anyway, no, moving I mean, on, moving on. The thing is, how do you respond to Melrod? Well, the only way you can respond is if you already have Arcbound Ravager in play. And you can just sacrifice all your permanents mm-hmm. at once to put something on top of it. That's also a huge liability. I mean, you know, what's the big... So your opponent, you're in the workshop mirror, and your opponent goes, turn one, Arcbound Ravager, Mox, maybe a Sphere, maybe some other free thing, like another Mox, and you go no Rod. I mean, that's the, that's the game right there. Mm-hmm. They have to put go all they have to go all in neat. on their Arcbound Ravager, basically. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you can just deal with that Ravager somehow... You're going to win. That is my instinct as well. And I also think, as you alluded to, that Nullrod then is a, also a natural predator to the big mana blue decks that we're expecting to come out. The Time Vault, uh, you know, seven or more Moxon kind of decks. It's also, it's got to be pretty bad for Steel City Vault. Oh, it's although, you know, it's not as fast as, yeah, it's not as fast as Chalice, but it's still pretty darn devastating for them as well. So I think I think you're going to see an uptick in Nullrod. Possibly a major uptick in Nullrod. Nullrod, like chalice is one of those cards that also promotes yes. other archetypes almost all the decks that we mentioned that have ancillary value for chalice can use null rod your hum your humans merfolk uh, land still i mean these decks can use null rod in the same way and they do use null rod in the same way i think there's also one other big winner oh, i mean there's several but there's one other key big winner and well, i think you, it's nature's yeah, you're, claim. you're now at the tactical level but that's fine keep going yeah well, we can we can go back and forth, I suppose. But uh, as long as we're talking about winners, Nature's Claim is a card that has seen diminished use late, lately because of Chalice at one, and also because green has probably, outside of Oath, become the worst color in Vintage, broadly speaking, amongst all the decks that have colored <laughs> mana in them. And those the combination of those factors means that Nature's Claim is seeing very little play. You don't splash it because it's it's just gets shut out by Chalice at one. So like Rug Delver stopped being a thing basically <laughs> for a number of reasons. But I just think you get rid of the Chalices and you also find decks that might need to have more flexible answers against Oath. I just think Nature's Claim is going to step back into the form. I could not more, but I actually think, I think Nature's Claim benefits even more than you just said. Nature's, Nature's Claim benefits okay. directly and indirectly. Chalice at one was the biggest liability for Nature's Claim. That's gone. I mean, basically it's gone now. And Nature's mm-hmm. Claim, um, obviously, bet, you know, is an instant. And the only card that you would even consider running over Nature's Claim now is Ingot Chewer. Cards like Shattering Spree are just worse, even though they can generate more card advantage. The instant speed is so huge in a format in which you have to combat Tanglewire. The, the key, though, and this is, I think, mm-hmm. even in some ways enhances Nature's Claim possibly more. It's the indirect mechanism, which is that the capacity to play zero-mana artifacts makes Nature's Claim much easier to cast and the benefits of resolving it are even greater because now you know it doesn't matter nature's claim is is going to be almost impossible to stop either from just spearage or you know whatever so now it's just Mm -hmm. you know it used to be so let me be a little bit more explicit so i'm the the disadvantage that nature's claim has Mm -hmm. vis-a-vis ingot chewer is obvious to everyone ingot chewer played under a thorn Mm -hmm. right and Ingot, you know, whereas Nature's Claim can't, but the capacity to generate all of your, play all of your artifacts now under spheres means that Nature's Claim, being an instant, may actually have the advantage in some respects. I think Nature's Claim gets a huge boost. Oh, yeah. And not just the direct boost. Na- Nature's Claim, it, a simple example, turn one on the play, Nature's Claim is a way better card. If you're against workshops and you go just landmarks, yeah. let's say, landmarks, something simple, they'd go and they go, uh, they go workshop uh, Mox yeah. Golem, right? Their best opener anymore. You just tap and destroy yeah. it on their end step. And then you untap and you have your turn with, th- with three or, or, or four mana at your disposal. 
that's something that Ingot Schuer could do, or but not nearly as well. You know, they go turn one. Um, let's say let's say the workshop player goes like workshop sphere resistance, and you go land mocks, and then they go turn mm-hmm. two uh, golem, and you go you know land you know or let's say they do turn two tangle wire, you know yeah, tangle wire they, is the there, upkeep, yeah. you can nature's claim the sphere and you know, and you have your forcible yeah. and then play another land and, and play a preordain yeah. or whatever yeah it's the it's the same thing with the golem in play you know you can just uh. You can nature's claim yep. under the tangle wire and get right right back to where you need to be. So we've espoused why being an instant is better than being in a sorcery, right? <laughs> but the thing that the real limit. So the chalice at one was a huge limiting factor for nature's claim. We know that. The other huge limiting factor is that green was the worst color basically outside of oath decks. So does anything that we've seen in these changes or what we expect? promote other green decks now or promote a green splash in a way that we didn't have before i don't the the thirst for knowledge decks that we've talked about whether they be tps tezzeret or slaver which were the the three biggest one and tps was kind of a distant third those were all blue black splashing red at the most those were grixis decks right there was no white there was no green in those decks it was rare that anyone splashed anything more than red into those decks you didn't need to there was no green card you wanted. In this day and age, though, there might be. There might be. You might want Abrupt Decay. You might want Nature's Claims and Abrupt Decays in your Tezzeret sideboard instead of red cards. Yeah. But then again, but DAC puts so much pressure on that. DAC means that if you're playing a blue deck, you're playing red in Vintage these days. Unless, unless you're Bomberman or Esper Mentor, basically. But those decks are, are very slim numbers. Almost every other archetype and almost every other deck has defaulted to being blue-red. In my opinion, when you evaluate the Thirst decks going forward, the real tension is going to be, do you play black? We know the synergy between Yawgmoth's Will and Thirst for Knowledge. It's, it's, it's written throughout the history books. It's not, it's, not, it's not a surprise. And we also know, thanks to decks like Grixis Thieves, that black still has plenty of nice options for us, be it Dismember, which you don't need black to play, uh, Toxic Deluge. Yeah. So you know the the thought seizes of the world i think there's a legitimate case to be made that these thirst decks even if they're modeled after tezzeret or yeah. slaver of the past black is not a necessity in many more Maybe right it was just it was back then yogmos will was such a reliable end game yeah. it really was because for one thing it didn't get countered by um red elemental blast which yeah. was the you know the counter <laughs> magic trump of the day but now, but now with the advent of Flusterstorm and Mental Misstep and the situational counters being so much better, I really feel like you can't expect your Yawgmoth's will to resolve you know, the way you when, could. And when we say Flusterstorm, we mean Flusterstorm and Snapcaster so Flusterstorm. Do you, do you think that, do you think that um, in the aggregate we're going to see a lot more Nature's Claims I, now? I think comparatively, yes, but you're talking about a tiny number being multiplied by two or three. That's yeah. kind of what I'm getting at. Is Nature's Claim becomes a more obvious sideboard card for Oath. So from that's that standpoint, would, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Brian Kelly's oath. Yeah, Brian Kelly's oath in this environment might not had to might not have had to have so many different cards in it, or might not have to have Dak Fade yeah. necessarily. I mean, it's still good and synergistic. Don't get me wrong, but my point is that pressure is diminished because Nature's Claim is more reliable against workshops, and Nature's Claim is just a better card across the environment because it's good against uh, Time Vault and it's good against Oath. So we might be entering... You know how I observed a couple of episodes back about how you just can't play Shatters in Vintage anymore? You just can't because there's no other artifacts that you need or want to shatter in any other deck other than Workshops. That time might be over. 
if Thirst really kicks up the number of Time Vaults out there, then now you want to be playing your Shatters in the sideboard of many things, and you might find yourself I playing main deck that, Nature's Claim, for Pete's sake. But in what But in what deck? Yeah. Yeah, outside of a, well, it could, what deck? It could, yeah, it could, bug, be in bug, it could be in, in a Delver-type deck. You could imagine it being main deckable. Um, life gain is not great, but yeah. the versatility against Oath is great, and especially in deck with Snapcasters. Sure. Definitely. So maybe one of the subtle tertiary winners yeah. here is Bug. The deck with Snapcasters is Bug, <laughs> by and large. <laughs> Not that Snapcasters are unique to that deck, but it's Snapcasters more than any other deck does right now. And if Nature's Claim is getting considerably better in multiple key matchups, key matchups, um, then maybe that's huge. But then the Bug's natural predator, which is Delver, it gets, then it goes back to that tension of Thirst versus Gush. Whoever really wins out in that battle is going to basically determine where Bug is positioned. <laughs> basically. <laughs> because Bug can be constructed to really prey on workshops. And then it can be metagamed, I think, to really prey on Thirst decks if you want to. Abrupt Decay is super good against Thirst decks, right? Yeah. yeah. When you're trying to key vault people, you got to Thought Seize that thing or misdirect it. I mean, those are your options. And Thought Seize hasn't seen consistent play for quite a while. Especially not in control. Interesting. I mean, in the aggregate, we would think Oath would get a nice boost because not being able to, ha- not having to face Chalice at, at two is huge. But on the flip side, having to face an increased uptick in Nature's Claims is no fun either. <laughs> <laughs> no. You know, but the other thing is, I think Gosh decks actually get a boost as well. I mean, the restriction of Chalice. I mean, what in my Gosh decks, I had to run like ten cards to fight Chalice at one because mm-hmm. it was so devastating. You know, I had to run Shattering Spree, Ingotchur, and Wear Terror. Yeah. Um, on top of forces. That's huge. So I, it's a, it's huge. Yeah. It's huge. So we've basically only talked about winners. <laughs> if yeah. not all of these decks can be winners, and even if a couple of them are, where's the air coming from? What are the losers here? Yeah. What deck haven't we mentioned? Dredge. How is Dredge affected by Chalice? Almost not at all. Chalice at one is disruptive against therapies, yeah. and that's basically it. Well, well Dredge, Dredge sometimes used Chalice in the sideboard, or even main deck, is a tactic. Yeah. But Dredge has now lost. Yeah. That's another, right. We forgot to mention, out of all those other decks that use Chalice, that Dredge was one of those decks. But it's very uncommon these days. It was more common before Dredge has all the tools it has today. But Do you think it would be more common as a one-of? Just Dredge players will throw it in as a main deck card? <laughs> no, I really don't. I don't expect that. No, the it's, dredge decks are really tight on space. There are so many tools. That very, but that's my point. They're so disrupt. They're so tight on space. One one card slot seems less costly than four. Well, dredge players are nothing if not creative. I've seen Library of Alexandria. I've seen it all. So, uh, it's anything. Anything <laughs> is possible. I just don't expect that to become anywhere near common. Let's put it that way. If 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 there's a lot of. Uh, Steel City Vault decks out there. I wouldn't be surprised if Dredge in the 75 has one chalice. Fair enough. That's fair. Now, back in the day, in 2009, when Thirst was at its apex, Dredge was a very common deck. It didn't have Bloodgast yet, it was, so it was far more reliant on Icarids, but it looked very similar to what it does today uh, in, the, in the low land counts and sense. It was far more common that they had Unmasks and or chalices and other spells rather than lands. Petrified Field hadn't really been discovered back then. But Dredge was consistently doing well, it just didn't win many events back then. 
Petrified Field was actually an old dredge tactic that was revived, but yeah, Fair. I mean, dredge, dredge was very prevalent back in that period. Very. But what kept? What was it about those thirst decks that kept dredge from doing very well? Was it just the speed? Yep. Yeah, because that dredge deck back then, I mean, it was it was probably a half to a whole turn slower than the ones are today, thanks to consistency provided. Actually, by your question is a little bit. Questions are kind of a, your question's a leading question. Because it assumes that dredge didn't was that didn't do very well. I think dredge actually was much more successful in the metagame in, during that period than it has been in the last couple of years in general. Not not this year, but in like the year and the last couple of years. Okay. And dredge in that period was very successful. I mean, you often had two two dredge decks in the top ages during that that period. I guess I, I guess that. I'm pointing to a lack of wins from the era in question. Yeah. But uh, to, to put it another way, the fact that Dredge was even making top eights in this era when Tez was so dominant is a testament to it doing well, just not being able to quite reliably beat Tez. Yeah. And we, we don't have statistics thanks to the age of this information, and we don't have statistics on the makeup of the field, so we can't really say about conversion rates. <laughs> but I'm just wondering, so out of all of the factors we've said now, not much of it appears to bear on the directly upon the Dredge ma- matchup. Hercules Recall, Null Rod, Nature's Claim, none of these cards matter in that matchup. Moreover, they're all dead, basically. So do we just continue in this era where everyone's fighting Dredge almost entirely out of the sideboard? I mean, <laughs> Time Vault decks have an inherent advantage against Dredge as compared to something like Gush. You know, Delver can't possibly hope to race a Dredge deck. They're completely reliant on the sideboard hate. But a deck like Tezzeret, or a Key Vault deck that has Demonic Tutor and Vamp Tutor, right? You can... A fan open a hand that has a time vault and a vamp in it and just race them and because yeah and because those grixis thieves decks have gone more play to the board and disrupt and we've gotten away from blightsteel colossus so tinker doesn't defeat dredge quite the way it has in the past exactly exactly that's what i was going to say i i it's really difficult to, to sort of assess you know we've been talking a lot about dredge i think dredge is a loser here I think Dredge is a big loser, or at least a modest loser, on a scale of one to ten. I think it's maybe like a loser, a five loser, <laughs> six, maybe a six or a seven. <laughs> the reason is because the loss of Chalice is going to open the field even more to the Belcher type strategies, which are a nightmare for Dredge. Mm. So I think, and I don't, I don't think Steel City Vault is a good matchup for Dredge either. Uh, so I think Dredge is is a loser here. That's a good point. If Steel, even if Steel City Vault ratchets up a couple of percentage points in terms of representation in the overall metagame, that's a huge impact on Dredge because you're right. That's almost an auto loss. I mean, the the way Dredge decks are currently constructed, I should say, it's almost an auto loss. Your point about the Chalice at one could be a very logical offshoot of that. It could be just one of a package of things, you know, five to six things that Dredge players have to add to either their main or side to stave off the combo matchup. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to say what the losers are, but I think, because we've said what every, everyone's a winner here. Yeah. But let's be honest, Gush decks are, are a loser here. The Gush decks lost two digs, which they would rather have back. Mm-hmm. And, and and they have to face now a big, a big blue threat. It's going to compete. The, the, the truth of the matter is that a lot of the players who are playing Gush and dig decks are going to convert. Some of them. Not a lot, but some. And I think that's inevitable. I also think it's inevitable that workshops lost. I mean, workshops workshops lost Chalice. They're going to also lose players. Do I think that workshops are going to be any less of a threat? Only marginally less. Workshops yeah. are still going to be fantastic. They might even be the best performing overall deck still. Uh, 
So, you know, they lose a little, I mean, everything here is margins, right? Mm-hmm. We're, not, we're not trying to say the whole metagame is going to be rewritten, but there are going to be some significant yet marginal changes uh, and in different kinds of directions. I think Oath is, is frankly a winner. Yeah. Uh, so Oath is a winner. Workshop's a loser. Gush is a loser. The big man sort of style decks are big winners. It, it's worth noting that that Grixis thieves and decks like it basically become con- converts, I think. Yeah, totally agree. So there's where some of the air comes from. Yeah, those decks just kind of disappear as they were and become reconfigured. Um, other things, it, it's hard to say, though. It, I mean, if, control, if the particular variants like Control Slaver really come to the fore, those could have really tremendous impacts on in terms of, uh, you know, like, for example, Control Slaver in particular can be really hard for some strategies to defeat. Yeah. Um, you know, and not just workshop decks, but control decks, like slow control decks may have a really difficult time defeating control slaver. You know, anyway, I mean, I, I don't know what happens to Bomberman or, you know, Landstill, but you could, can see, you could see control slaver being quite challenging for those decks. Well, Goblin Welder is easier to deal with than it ever has been. So I believe that if a deck like that started to make waves, it would be almost trivially easy to to hate it out, basically, with good cards, not bad cards. But, but you know, talk this much, but the interaction of thirst for knowledge and goblin Welder is absurd, <laughs> and just the capacity. I mean, in, in Rich's list, he was using um, what's the Tinker robot he was using? It was Mere um, Battlesphere. Yeah, Mere Battlesphere. I mean, how does a landfill pilot deal with that? <laughs> well, you can't you can't just plow it and remove it. Because it had, creates all these tokens, you know. You see what I'm saying? That it, 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 it's. Yeah, I, uh, I think that card is. I think, think that we really cannot underestimate the simple power of this, even a single turn of of you know a, a goblin welder activation. It's there's no doubt. There's more reason, ways to answer it than ever. But Rich Shea's control flavor list had four mental missteps, mm-hmm. and you know if they can even protect goblin welder for even a turn in a thirst deck, it can do devastating things. Devastating. A mind slaver activation, you know, a mere battle sphere brought in once or twice, you know, uh, a uh, a sundering titan. Who knows? It can just be devastating. Yeah. Well, you're true. Or, I mean, what you say is true. And as I think about the workshop matchup for control slaver in this environment too, I think the one thing that's about goblin welder is that it is a cheap, efficient threat. And because this era of control slaver decks has access to scalding tarn, like like no 2009 deck ever did, then you might find that turn one Tarn fetching your basic mountain Goblin Welder Go is almost single-handedly good enough to win a workshop match or, you know, sideboarded game because yeah. Phyrexian Revoker is nice, but but all the modern decks are going to be, they're going to have more answers than their workshop players have Revokers. And all it takes is one Ingot Chewer to turn that Goblin Welder back on. And then yes. all and then all manner of you might you might say well you never want to weld that revoker back in but that's not true that's yeah, not you might you might to. want to because if they play if you play welder go and they play revoker on your welder go and you play another land and pass maybe you don't you don't have a counter up I mean maybe you got force will but the point is on their second turn then they play a lock component that you want to deal with they play a lodestone golem that they couldn't cast on turn one well in that case. Heck yes, you want to weld that revoker back in because you can you can ingot chewer that revoker on your welder. Yeah, and then mid combat maybe you weld that revoker in for for the you know in place of the lodestone. Or the point is is then at that point you have options. 
At that point, yeah. you get to choose what's worse, the thing you have in play or that revoker turning off my welder, and do I have another answer? And if the thing that I'm and the thing I'm bringing out is a, a lock component along the lines of tangle wire or sphere, then I'm opening up my spells. So I get to trade this permanent I've got in play for the ability to cast okay. a spell in my hand, and that sometimes that kind of trade is all you need against workshops to trade up for one mana even. People cannot underestimate how powerful Goblin Welder is, and tactically, I think Goblin Welder is a huge winner. It's no longer to be vulnerable to Chalice at one. It gets its best friend in Draw Engine, <laughs> Thirst, and it now has another one in DAC. Yeah. And you're going to be able to consistently do broken things with Goblin Welder. Goblin Welder gets a gigantic boost. That's a good point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. I was mentioning the defensive act, uh, utility of Goblin Welder, but look at what happens when you're using it offensively. Look at just the one turn, the one activation window you get from an Ingot Chewer, right? You play that Goblin Welder on turn one, they revoke it on turn one. You could sit there for four or five turns. You could discard to hand size for Pete's sake. And if that thing you discard to hand size is some giant scary thing, then all you do is untap, Ingot Chewer, your revoker, bring that scary thing in, and now look what the game looks like. It's also the case that, that as between Dak and Welder, you want them to name Welder. You might not want them to name Dak. That's a good point, too. You're already putting pressure on the revokers, and adding Goblin Welders overloads them, too. So perhaps I'm overplaying how good Revoker is at fighting Welder, because ultimately we're already overloading revokers in modern vintage anyway, with thanks to Planeswalkers. I also can't help escaping in terms of winners. I think that the Null Rod aggro decks probably get a little bit of a boost. It may be a wash that they really needed the, the Chalice, but I think that the the proliferate more in the format, which means that the Null Rod decks, the decks that naturally like Merfolk, are probably going to get a little bit better. Could be. Could be. It, it will be uh, hard to detect, though, <laughs> because they perform so so small numbers all uh, in the end. Before we wrap up, Steve, let's do some listener feedback from our last episode. I want to start with an email res- we received on our trigger discussion. This one from Lisa Seeley, and she gave us some good feedback about the nature of triggers, detrimental versus non-detrimental, but she really wants us to clarify one point, or she she said there's some potential misinformation we gave with regard to playing, uh, remembering your own triggers, and cheating, and it was specifically in the context of playing spells into Chalice of the Void. Steve, what do you think? Yes. Well, I may have miss spoke or you know misled folks when i was describing the interaction of sort of paper magic and playing cards into chalice i said i believe i said that at one point that i from my personal subjective view is that playing a card into your opponent's chalice intentionally should be cheating mm. but I acknowledge under the current floor rules that's not the case so i didn't want i may have generated some confusion around that i apologize if i did um as for the case of playing cards into your own chalice, there may be important reasons to do that. Um, you know, anyway, so I didn't want to, you know, it's like you're trying to trigger another spell or whatever. It, you know, anyway, so that's not cheating either. I just wanted to be clear that in my in my view, sort of my sort of, you call it old school way of thinking, that <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, people should be responsible for triggers like that. And, and it's kind of shady it, it, at best, and cheating at worst. But it's not, in fact, cheating, so mm-hmm. be absolutely clear about it. <laughs> 
yes, we are guilty of speaking uh, philosophically, I think, about the rules sometimes as opposed to literally. So thank you for our listeners, Lisa and the other that wrote in for prior episodes. Thank you all for keeping us honest. We also wanted to dig in a little bit to some feedback we got on the Manadrain from our last episode vis-a-vis card evaluation. Steve, one of the specific points is about bring to light. What did you want to highlight there? The uh, listeners said that we were maybe a bit hasty in rushing away our bring to light. And he, po- he points, he or she points out that, um, that the, the card could read as follows. Bring to light one U-B-G-R, choose one. Tinker, Yawgmoth's Will, Demonic Tutor, Time Walk, Ancestral Recall, Notion Thief, Time Twister. You know, put that card into your hand, right? No, play it. And, Even and better. This, all right, but this person's not wrong. Not wrong. But I actually think we did give this card a fair hearing. And there's two things to point out. One is that um, just because we predict, again, we said this a lot last time, but just because we predict cards will not appear in top eights does not mean we don't think are, they are playable. <laughs> Right. Uh, then the mixture of considerations that go into a card seeing top eight is much different um, than just whether we think it meets some baseline level of playability or power. And we tried to do our best to distinguish between those two things. So we'll all say, yes, I think this card's playable, but nonetheless, I don't think it's easy to play. Um, in terms of our analysis, Kevin, what were some of the highlights of our analysis of Bring the Light? Well, we definitely acknowledge that it has a lot of flexibility and the fact that it can go out and search these haymaking sorceries that we're so fond of. But also, at five mana, it's competing for space with other game-ending effects in Vintage, and the best probably example is Tezzeret, the Seeker, who already sees very little play in Vintage. And even though Tezzeret doesn't have quite the toolbox of Tinker, Will, Time Walk, Notion yeah. Thief that this card does, which is admittedly an advantage to this card... Tezzeret also doesn't have the requirements this card does. Tezzeret's only blue, and being able to get uh, Time Vault and win the game with it is one thing that Bring the Light can't do. Tezzeret's ability to do that is already not being utilized in most vintage decks these days. So the fact that an effect, a game-ending and possible toolbacks-type effect exists in Mono Blue already suggests that this 2-4 to four color iteration that has a couple of different options is still probably not good enough. Well... One of the things that, that I think is important to note is that what are the role of tutors in the format right now? You mentioned Tezzeret. There's also at the fringe Dark Petition, mm-hmm. and there's also Grim Tutor further to the fringe. Tutors, you know, besides Burning Wish, you know, which is also fringe, there aren't a lot of tutors that are sort of central to the format at the moment um, that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, and that could change with Thirst for Knowledge. Um, but... Expensive tutors especially just aren't aren't seeing a lot of play. And it's true that, you know, Dark Petition does generate some mana, and this card does sort of the same, but it's about the same, it's about the same whatever, right? So you pay five mana, and you can you can get to play your Yogg Muscle or your Tinker. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's pretty much the same as Dark Petition vis-a-vis Yogg Will and Necropotence. Yeah. So I, I think, I, you know, I think we said this, but it seems to me it's basically, a, I, th- I see the similar power level to Dark Petition. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we're going to continue to try and be as clear as we can in future set reviews about the distinction between playable and will make top eight appearances. Yeah. But still, good discussion. Yeah. And and just to add one other note to that, cards can be playable, but the metagame might not be right for them. And metagame shifts will make, will give them the space they need to breathe. So it's not just a matter of, hey, someone championing this card. There can be other considerations as well. Yeah. 
it's not entirely unplayed, but I think Nature's Claim is an example of that, as we discussed. Nature's Claim is exactly. a perfectly cromulent vintage card, but <laughs> the decks and the, the hate against it and its role in the environment just don't line up for it to see a lot of play these days. And the flip side is Shattering Speed, which saw a lot of play and it's probably going to see a lot less. Yeah. And with that, thank you for listening to episode 49 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. We hit the next game for the game! <laughs> <laughs>